This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the pod bay doors, Cal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we dive deep on films from first-time directors, indies, and art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we take a look into the cinema maestro Stanley Kubrick and his 1980 horror classic, The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and it's based on the pop culture writer Stephen King's book of the same name. Jack Torrance becomes winter caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado, hoping to cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife, Wendy, and his son, Danny, who is plagued by psychic premonitions. As Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hell-bent on terrorizing his family. Welcome to the last podcast of Horror Month. I'm Gabe Wienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined today by veteran podcaster and horror film fanatic, Alan Martindale. Alan, how the hell are you? Oh, dude, I'm so good. I'm so good. Good. I'm uh, good. glad to hear that. I'm ready to jump into this. Well, I- I'm super excited because you let me geek out over over Texas Chainsaw. So now I'm excited because this is your this is this is your thing. This is mine, and it's it's kind of a little sad in the sense that this is our last episode for Horror Month. I know, I, dude. October goes way too fast every year. It's crazy, right? Because yeah. I feel like we just started, and now we're we did five films. This is our fifth film we've yep. done, and now it's going to be over. Bummer for for Horror Month. Not going to be over forever, right? Uh, and starting next week, we'll just get back into the origins of what the podcast is, and we'll look at some films from first time film film directors. Um, so let's make this one count. Hell yeah. Let's do it. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, because we're talking about the legendary film, this is, uh, the shining. I mean, it, the internet is literally inundated with theories and philosophies and meaning behind the film. Right. Um, it's from legendary filmmaker, Stanley Kubrick. And by no means am I going to come into this podcast telling you that I'm not a Kubrickian <laughs> and people either love that or hate that. Right. Sometimes there's a middle ground, but mostly people are either like, come on, let's stop clamoring over Stanley Kubrick. Right. Or they're like in the same boat as me and we're traveling down the same river. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I'm all about Kubrick. Right. And it all really starts for me in uh, just after, really after, right after high school, I see A Clockwork Orange. Dude, that movie blew my mind. Blew wasn't my even entirely, as a 19, 20 year old kid, wasn't even entirely sure the context of everything that I was watching, Mm -hmm. but for some reason I was just enamored and and I just kept wanting to watch it and and discover new things. As far as I'm concerned, and it's been a while since I've seen it, I'd actually be interested to go back and rewatch it. It's damn near a perfect film. Like I, 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 every time I watch it, I'm just, I'm blown away. Just everything that he does in that, in that movie is fantastic. And I read the book afterwards and, um, I actually like what he built on from the book. From the book. Yeah. yeah. Like the book is all written in that weird language they talk in. Yeah. And for Kubrick to kind of. And I haven't read the book. So the whole way through they're talking and speaking in that manner. Yeah. And it's almost like reading Shakespeare where you have to get used to the language. But once you do, you it, you kind of starts flowing a little bit. But, right. Man, it was hard to start off with, with that book. For but sure. you like what he built off of it. I love it. I absolutely love it. And the world that he created. Exactly. And I'm not. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not a big, big book reader. Mm-hmm. I've read a few books in my life. Uh-huh. As a teacher, I would hope so. Mostly yeah. textbooks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no joke. Like, mo- Remember on my LinkedIn profile years and years ago when I first put it up, 
it said interest and I said reading textbooks. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Fucking stupid. Yeah. There's nothing worse for me. I think I've grown out of that a little bit. Maybe I still like textbooks. I don't know why. And a matter of fact, in preparation for this podcast, I have a textbook. Oh my God. I know. (laughs) It's all noted up. That's hilarious. Look at all those notes. uh, (laughs) That's so funny. That was not intended. Oh my God. We did not rehearse this. But for those that are watching on YouTube, you see I literally have my intro to film textbook because I was doing some prep on The Shining. So we're talking about Kubrick. We're talking about The Shining. And similar to Clockwork Orange, The Shining is an adaptation based off a book, Mm -hmm. based off of Stephen King's third novel called The Shining. And we'll get into some of the things. You've read The Shining. You've read the novel. Yeah, I have. Once again, I haven't as I stick strictly to textbooks. But uh, from the be- what, what I find real intriguing from the very get-go of this film, and on the way over, I was actually doing a little prep in my head as you're kind of running through things and right. thinking about the movie. And I'm listening to some of the soundtrack. And in particular, I'm listening to uh, Requiem by Mozart, which is the opening track to The, to the Shining. Oh, so, is it? Yeah. So That's from, a Mozart. It's a track Mozart on. track. And he never finished it. Interesting. Ironically enough, he got so far into it, and then his protege took it over, and then some guy swooped in. I don't remember his name. They're mm-hmm. all German names I right. can't remember. And tried to claim that it was his. Of course. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I'm listening to this. Dun, 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 I know. It's playing through my head right you know? now as soon as you start the talking about The whole thing. It. And I love the opening sequence to this film because of – that song kind of presents a lot of ethereal feeling and it's a little, it's juxtaposed with this beauty of the mountains and mm-hmm. the aerial views that we're getting as this little contrasty yellow V-dub bug drives up a mountain. Right. And it's this big or- orchestral mix and the credits roll over it. It's got some eerie screeches. It's almost got some yelling of like humanistic ghostly voices, not yelling, but it's kind of subdued. And then it also has this Gregarian chant almost feeling to it, you know, religious right. undertone of like a chant. You hear those, those, those voices. But I love the opening scene because it doesn't feel like it's, you know, I feel like if you're doing, uh, you're introducing uh, a world that's, uh, that's grand and, and different and fantastical and horrific, mm-hmm. It's easy to jump into that scene and like get some some like diegetic sound and like maybe hear the car rolling or like hear a conversation in the car or music in the car right. or something. And none of that the whole way through through the whole opening credits, all we hear is this kind of almost repetitious orchestral music juxtaposed with these beautiful scenery shots. It almost feels like you're separated from from the car, like you're separated from what's going on there, and you're you're kind of entering this world, and you see just how expansive and isolated this is yeah and it's it really does it's really creepy set with the music it's really creepy and that's a great point because because we're gonna get into this world and the only way to get there is this elongated drive away from from everybody right away from everything and and so kind of getting us there preparing us and building in this really big orchestral music with these Gregorian sounds is an interesting wing to start the, to film. And also the car's an interesting choice. It's like you have a VW bug, which kind of seems out of place. Right. 
and you would almost assume it to be. I'm I'm actually searching when you're going through these beautiful mountains. I'm looking for like a big truck with a lumberjack. Oh, for I'm sure. not looking for, for sure. this kind of out of place VW a really bug. Tiny little car. Right. It just kind of it magnifies the uh, the insignificance of of the car and whoever's inside the car. Yeah, that's great. So we get into that first scene, and immediately once he gets this is Jack, by the way. And, it, and, and this is where I find it structurally interesting for Kubrick's approach to the film, which is he breaks the film up into segments. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll get into each of these, but ultimately the segments are identified by these inner titles. So after this big opening sequence, we jump into the hotel and as Jack's going in, there's an inner title that comes up and says the interview. Right. And he goes in and he goes to try to meet the manager and, and he's going to interview for this position, which is basically the person who's going to overlook and, and keep uh, the maintenance man who's going to, you know, the caretaker who's going to over, uh, who's going to look at the hotel for over the winter months while it's closed down. Right. So, and and th- I mean, this is where, and I'll kind of, I'll kind of preface. So I read the book first. Yeah. Um, years and years ago, I read the book first. So I went into the movie the first time I saw it, you know, fresh off the book. I mean, it was one of those things where I read it and I loved I loved it so much. I think it's one of Stephen King's best books that I've read. I haven't read them all. But so I, I immediately had to see this movie, this movie that everyone loves. Everyone's talked about. So go over to Video Vern's across the street and I rent it and I'm super excited. And it's just so, so different. And it's so from the casting to the, a lot of the choices made. So the first time I saw this movie, I I hated it just because it was so it was so removed from what I had built in my head from from King's uh, from King's book. So when he goes to meet Ullman, already I'm already it doesn't feel right because they they're buddies in in the movie. Okay. And in the book, in the book they're not. They're not. They don't like each other immediately. I think the opening line of the book is uh, something about. He Ullman's an officious little prick or something like that. King always opens with these crazy, crazy lines, and they're talking about Ullman. And they're, they're, it's a very contentious relationship. So I, I tried to go into this viewing uh, a little bit more open-minded, and I, I definitely appreciate it more. But there are some things that's just still sticking in my craw. You can't, you can't get, you just, can't get those out. I, I wish I never would have read the book first. Yeah, so I really, I really do. It kind of ruined me. That's interesting though, because once Jack's introduced to Ullman, they're kind of buddy buddy. Yeah. And Ullman's immediately. immediately like clamoring over him and loving him and right. being like, hey, they, they sent you as a recommendation. We sure love you. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. that's in contrast to what you would have read in the book, which which Ullman and, and Jack obviously have some kind of kind of animosity towards each yeah, other. Yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. So it's hard for you to get past that. For me, because I hadn't read the book, it, it didn't carry as much significance. Right. What it did do, though, was kind of introduce Jack and as a result of introducing Jack, I kind of liked him. Well, and that's – I was going to ask you this question because to me it almost comes off when Jack's being uh, – and I think this is one reason Stephen King isn't a fan of, of this adaptation. Uh, Jack is – he comes across as being really disingenuous when he's, when he's being a nice guy, whether it's to Wendy or Ullman or whoever. It feels – or even Lloyd, the bartender. It just feels like it's not – that's not really him. It feels like he's putting on a mask. And I, I don't know if, if, you know, you've probably seen this movie way more than me. I don't know if that's something that, that struck you ever. That's a good question. I actually never saw it with that, with that, with that lens. 
you say that now, and I can almost see part of what you're talking about mm-hmm. in that character. When I first meet Jack, I'm actually kind of, I feel like there's an endearing quality to him. I actually feel he's, at, and that's funny because con- contrasting what you're saying, and this doesn't mean that I actually don't, uh, that, I, that I don't agree, or I do agree with you, is that I actually thought he was kind of genuine and kind of nice. Okay. Okay. To be honest, that's that's how I've always kind of seen him, at least in this opener. Sure, in the opener. Yeah, sure. in the opener, and, and he's talking about he's 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 almost very cordial mm-hmm. because he's like talking to Almond about like what why do you guys close down the uh, what may I ask and right, he's like right. very cordial about how he, can I ask you this and like he almost comes across a little friendly to me. Oh, totally, and that I mean that's why I, I think it's really when Almond starts talking about the murders that happened. And it's, you know, he's presenting. Then, okay. And then Jack just kind of brushes it off like it's nothing. Yes. Which, to me, it's like, wait a minute. That wouldn't give you any pause at all. Yes. That's what I'm like. Maybe something more is going on with him here. And that's true. Cause, and, and, and they're being cordial. And then, and then Alban brings up the 1970 murder. Right. Uh, and the two the two children and the wife and the, the husband, that, that, you know, the, careta- the previous caretakers I mean, from hack, years ago. Hacked up with an axe. Hacked up with an axe into tiny pieces and then takes both barrels of a shotgun and puts it in his mouth. Exactly, yeah. So you're right, because at at that point, I do see a little bit of, um, there's like a sense of nonchalantness to Jack's Mm -hmm. response. Right. He's like, oh, yeah, I can see how that's a bit scary. See why you didn't want to tell me earlier. Okay. I mean, see why they waited uh, waited for you to tell me, not tell me in Denver. Right, exactly. So, yeah, a little bit of that there. But I think immediately from the character perspective, I'm looking at Jack and, and I have I actually find some some humanistic kind of endearing qualities to him. Oh, I agree. I agree know? for sure. Uh, he's meeting with Ullman and um, w- one thing that's discovered is that Jack's a former school teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and while we're finding this out about him being a, a, a former school teacher, he discloses to Allman and to Bill, which we'll get into Bill a little bit. Yeah. Bill's the side. I, I call him the sidekick to Allman. Oh, totally. You know? Totally. But we find out that Jack's a former school teacher. And this I know from the book, but not from the movie. And I haven't read the book, but I did some research that uh, told me a little bit about Jack's character. And you can verify the, the validity of this. Mm-hmm. He's a former school teacher, and in the movie, he mentions that he kind of got out of teaching. He was only doing it to make ends meet, and he was also interested. Now he's a writer. Right. He's basically like, I've kind of left that thing. I'm more focused on my writing. Mm -hmm. And in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, he's not just leaving school because he wants to be a writer, but he's actually, he was fired for some kind of physical altercation with a student yeah if i remember right it's been a long time since i've read the book i because he was an alcoholic and i think he came to work drunk if i'm not mistaken a lot of any king sure, fans out there are gonna kill yeah, me yeah. if i get these I wrong know. but uh, we don't care bring it on yeah exactly, comments. exactly but i think yeah i think he was he came to work drunk and he had some phys- sort of physical altercation which means that he's prone to violence and you see later on you know when the exposition happens with what happened with his son it's you see this is a problem yes because it immediate and so in the book that's 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 there and then in the in the movie it's not because i don't really understand that context about him being an alcoholic mm-hmm. or an abusive person physically i don't really get that from the movie 
Well, and that's it's a, it's a King trope for sure because King has struggled with, with substance abuse in the past, and this is a constant thing in his books is someone's either a drug addict or they're uh, they're an alcoholic and they're prone to violence, and it's a very common thing with his work. And, and here's the thing is, and then on, on top of all that, which you just mentioned, he's Jack's also a writer. Right, right. Oh, yeah, and that's the other thing. He always has to have a writer in there. There's always a writer. And this is like the first book, one of the only books that don't doesn't take place in Maine because it has to take place in Colorado. But they do hint at Vermont. They hint at True. Vermont. True. Uh, so there, there's some similarity there Yep. because we were both talking about the Northeast. But um, Almon hinting at a little bit of like subtext about once he uh, shares the story about Grady and his family – and Ullman's also hinting at the subtext of isolation and being separated and the claustrophobia that can come. You know, he's, he's almost in a sense apologizing for Grady's actions mm-hmm. because of what can happen at the hotel when you're isolated and alone and right. secluded from everybody else right. and how it can become a problem. So immediately, I agree with you. There's a couple things here logically that you could look at from the character arc, which is like we know, we, we know later that Jack's not a logical character. Right. But if you are looking at this movie for the first time, those uh, um, hints at the history of the hotel, the isolation, being secluded might be things to consider before you actually accept the job. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I the claustrophobia. And these are also hinting at things we made subtextually cover later on in the film. Mm -hmm. Isolation, claustrophobia, you know, all those kinds of ideas are actually potential thesis to the film later on yeah. which which we'll, we'll we'll get into um while this is happening we actually do while it's still in the interview stage mm-hmm. this still the interview inter the the intertitle of interview we get a little fade cut into wendy and danny and we're introduced into wendy in their apartment out out you know somewhere around or near denver area mm-hmm. And they're living in this apartment. And Danny, we get an introduction to, uh, like I said, Danny, Wendy. And we also get an introduction into Tony. To Tony. And this is another thing that kind of, it's not, it just doesn't feel good. You know, in the book, Tony is an actual imaginary friend. Like he's not someone that lives inside of Danny's mouth. And he doesn't talk with the finger. And I, I don't know if it's just the kid's voice when he does Tony, but something, and even going back and watching it later, like now, it still kind of rubs me the wrong. It just feels not quite. It's not scary. Do you see? And I. That's interesting because I. But once again, and I'm probably a Kubrick apologist. Right. Right. So don't listen to my opinion. But I'm. I love it. Do because, you? Yeah. The creepiness of it to me, and you know, like. So it's ominous. Yes. So you, you very get, much so. You get the ominous vibe. For, I, I do. don't at all. Like I'm taken out of it immediately. Only because. I think as a parent, I imagine if my son that was that age came up to me sure. and in a serious tone was performing these conversations with his finger. Right. Not jokingly, like, hey, dad, I'm funny. But like it, it came across very authentic and serious. Yep. yep. I would be creeped out. It'd be scary. It'd be scary for yeah. sure. So I, I see where they're going with it. Um, and so for me, it is very, very, you know, it's, it's a little bit creepy. I think it's just the voice. I think the voice that he makes when he does Tony is it just bugs me. It doesn't, it doesn't land. It doesn't vibe. I don't yeah. know. It's just, it's not, it's not hitting it. So, but w- what it does give us in this little, in this little portion of the scene is that we're introduced to Wendy, who's the motherly figure, 
you you immediately kind of understand her attachment to her son, mm-hmm. which is a pretty common theme, mother to son. You know, she's nurturing and loving. Um, she's even um, placating his uh, his attachment to this voice that he, or not the voice, but the, the, the Tony figure, mm-hmm. the imaginary Tony figure. She plays into it. She even asks if Tony would be interested in living in the hotel if daddy gets the job. Right, right. And so she's playing into this character. And, um, it's, and then, uh, once again, there's a lot of, uh, kind of, uh, these scenes always kind of allude to what's going to happen in the story later, because after we get introduced to these characters and we understand a little bit that Danny's he's, there's some things that are happening inside. Obviously Mm -hmm. he's got some mental issues that are he's working with and his mom's it's kind of there's there, it's almost she's a little once again we keep going back to this with some of these parental figures in these right, horror films right and and she's a nice mom by the way so oh, she's different sure. than the others and but she's not and and we'll get into this she's not very protective of her son until later on right but up to this point she's just kind of oblivious to the reality of the problem that her son might have from the mental standpoint. Right, right. It, it's it's she's she's quick to dismiss the imaginary friend thing, which I get. But then, see, this is where I like the talking finger, because if you just were talking to an imaginary friend, mm-hmm. it's almost very childish and and it can come across more playful. Sure. But when you hold up your finger and in a serious tone start talking to right. it like there's a thing there, right. there's there's a weird attachment for me that might yeah something become, <laughs> something just something's yeah. up there yeah. not as not as not as ominous or scary as like it's more ominous and scary than the than just an imaginary friend potentially being there. for sure. But we introduce this and and then you know Tony doesn't want to go to the hotel no nope. because the other thing is. Not we kind of learned that it's not just Danny having like mental problems, but he's actually a clairvoyant. He can actually has he has premonitions. He right. sees things, and Tony's part of that premonition, that gift. Mm-hmm. Right, he's got some some gift that he's allowed to see, you know, into the future. Yeah. So Tony is telling him, "I don't want to go," and then his mom basically says, "Oh well, we're it'll be fine." And she actually delivers the line, and she says, "We're all going to have a real good time." <laughs> Shelley Duvall's performance is uh, interesting. Okay, well, while we're on it, before we move into the next little thing, because I want to get into these performances, we might as well tackle Shelley at this point, who plays Winifred, yeah, a.k.a. She's, Wendy. She's, uh, it's interesting, because I actually think she does a good job. When I saw this early on, I've seen this movie probably two or three times before watching it for this review, and when I saw it the, the first couple times, I just I hated her performance all the way through. But now, going back and watching it now, I think I like her performance earlier on much better. It's when things go haywire and she's acting scared. It's just not it, – it, it's cartoony. It's too cartoony for me. Okay. Like she's flailing her arms and, oh, my God, you know, and it just doesn't feel – legit at all it's it's just didn't it, it didn't feel like a real performance it was very campy yeah we'll get into a little bit of that later with her performance and some of the other performances i will say with her performance i'm actually very convinced about how she plays it okay and i have some notes here we'll touch into that in just a little bit right so i don't want to dive too deep okay. too quickly but I will say that I like how she plays the responsiveness to what's happening in terms of the horror. 
Well, and I will say the stuff with her and Danny, uh, I think is fantastic. Like her as a mother, I truly believe that she was terrified for the kid and really concerned from the get go. Yeah. You could really feel that bond there. Yeah. She's got them. the nurturing. It's there. The development of like her being a good mom is developed. Yeah. At least caring for her son. Yeah. And immediately it's the two of them and Jack's off at the interview. And, and so there's a sense already that there's uh, there's there's space between those characters. Yeah, there's some sort of division there. Not just physically with where they're at, but also just, you know, for sure. Relationship wise. Uh, and we'll get into that. But she says we're all going to have a real good time. Then it does these transitions. And, and we see this throughout the movie. The transitions are these really long, kind of elongated, elaborate dissolves these dissolves were driving me crazy really oh driving me crazy especially because then they have the jump scare with the titles yeah where the titles are immediate cut with the with the music stinger yeah and it's like well why are you using the jump scare music there and these long long dissolves it's like okay let's get to the point here see and i love this because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go into combat here me and you oh yeah yeah i i feel the opposite which is these these long a couple things that it does for me. And there's a few that I can think of off the top of my head. And they're really long and dragged out. Yes, the pacing is slow right. on the transitions. I love how he does them because if you look at most of the transitions, there's a lot of intention behind them. What that intention is, I can only assume right. and interpret. Right. And part of it is if you look at a few of these transitions, they always go from either a kind of a medium close-up shot or a close-up shot. And on the B side of that dissolve, it's a more expansive wide master shot. And the character is dissolving as a big figure into this other side. Sure. So, and, and it's so long, it like hangs on it. The one I'm thinking of in particular is when Jack, this is later on, but just to show the point, is when Jack and Wendy are side by side standing. It's right after they've gone up to the hotel as, mm-hmm. a, as a family. And then it cross dissolves into the big, this full shot of the big hedges. And it looks like Jack and Wendy are like giants in, right, in the right, hedges. Right. And all these just seem very intentional is what I mean. Uh, you know, it's one thing for the pacing, and I can understand that. They, they could, they, I can see how, from a lot of viewers' standpoint, they can probably feel like they drag out. But I love the intention of, like, I'm going to take you from here to here, you know. Well, and that's the thing about uh, when I watch Kubrick films is there's stuff going on that I know, and I mentioned this off mic a little bit, I know that there's something important. Like watching 2001 for the first time, I watched that movie and I knew I saw something super important and I like it was sending a message. I just had no idea. I'm not cerebral or smart enough to know what it was. And I feel like there's no doubt like I can feel the intention in these dissolves without a doubt. I don't know what the hell it's trying to say. Right. And I'm just like at this point, this is a hyped up movie, you know, super scary, scariest movie of all time type of thing. And it's like, let's. Let's get going, man. Like, let's let's let's. I want to see what's happening next. It's funny because I also think he's playing into convention, because the con- or playing in uh, contrast to what convention is. Because I like how Definitely. you alluded to like, uh, usually those jump cuts with the music stingers are in the moment when the monster comes yes. and it's and it's scary, or they're fake first, and then the second one, the follow up is always the monster or right. whatever. 
those conventions are. And in most of the scenes, there's kind of a lot of slower builds and the dissolves we're talking about. And then in the inner titles, the music the music hits with the the hard cut to the right, titles. Right, exactly. And I find it interesting because they're it's almost like a reprieve for me. I'm so those are so drawn out. Those scenes, are, those segments of this film that we're going over right now, we're still in the interview. We're not even beyond right, anything. Right, but like right. in those moments, everything's a little bit slow, and then all of a sudden, you cut to hard black with black with the titles, and it's like, oh shit, that scene's over. Right, and you can almost relax out of that moment for a little bit, and it's playing in opposition to how you might use a jump scare in another one because the jump scare in the other conventional horror film is that you're, you're, oh man, right, scared. Right. Where here it plays contrary, which is like, ah, oh, I get it. For me, when I watch it, I get a little like, okay, a breather and I can like move on to the next portion of the movie. And this, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of, uh, so for me, it's not necessarily using the, the jump scare tactics on the titles. It's more like this, this whole movie is just atmosphere. It's just, creepy editing and a lot of a lot of creepy music and nothing really happening until like the last half hour right and it's a two and a half hour movie well let's get into it let's keep moving on this scene and talk about those those points because after we get introduced to danny and wendy and tony we're back at the what i want to ask you a question on this because then we're we cut back to jack with allman in the in the office and and he's told him about grady and the killings in 1970 and we talked about Jack's response, and Jack's literal line is, rest assured, that's not going to happen to me. <laughs> right, right. Uh-huh. So I think he's playing into it again, telling us, like, whatever they say is the opposite of what's going to happen. Because yep. Wendy says, we're all going to have a real good time. It's the opposite. Good point. Good we're point. not going to happen to me. He's always playing the juxtaposition of, yep. of what's being said. And what's funny is he even alludes to Wendy being a horror fan. Yeah, that's hilarious. You know, is that in the book, by the way? I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay. I, I don't. It just based on the the Wendy that I know from the book, I don't think so. Okay, but it might be because he's like, well, she's always like ghostly things. Well, and, maybe that's kind of a know, very Stephen King type of thing. It to could put in fall there. into that yeah. trope. Um, and we now we so we have a pretty good base of the characters. At least initially, Jack, for me, in my interpretation, is relatively cordial. He's nice. There's for, there's a little bit of uh, like you were mentioning, uh, when he hears about the murders and things like that, there's a little bit of he plays that off a little too lightly. Yeah, he's smiling through the whole story, basically. Right, but but still, he's kind of just endearing to us to a degree. Wendy is developed well in in the sense that we understand that she's a nice, nurturing mom who's kind of accommodating to her son. Her son obviously has some kind of powers and clairvoyancy and mm-hmm. supernatural gift. Um, and we understand that. And then that's really after Jack's being uh, taken around the, the facility, it's really cutting back to the apartment. And it's really then told about what Danny can do with his gift because he's in the mirror in the bathroom. And it's this foreshadow. He, he's talking to Tony in the bathroom. Right. And they're, they're having a conversation I, about moving to the hotel. And he's like, that, you know, he knew that Jack got the job. And then the telephone right. rings. And, and sure enough. Jack, well, I like them. I like that little conversation between Danny and Tony there. Like I, I really enjoy that. He's like, why don't you want to go to the hotel? He's like, I don't want to tell you. And so I, I like that because that does kind of set up like, oh, this it's not just an imaginary friend. Something creepy is really going on with this kid. Like that's the part where I started to buy in and believe it a little bit. That's a good and, and be, that conversation 
when he says, I don't want to go with the, he knows that Tony knows something. Yes. And, and Tony, of course, is the clairvoyant aspect to Danny's right. personality right. and person. So I think, speaking of that real quick, a jump off tangent, which is the performance. What do we think? So Danny Lloyd is the mm-hmm. actor, the kid, who also plays the character Danny. Uh, what are we thinking up to this point in terms of his delivery as and the believability of like a kid who's got some supernatural gifts and also, you know, just being a kid in general? I, I actually thought he was really good. Uh, Super good. I, I thought he was um, a, as especially early on in the movie when he's just kind of a regular kid and he's eating a sandwich. He's watching his cartoons. I thought he's very believable. I think he's believable throughout the whole thing. I just think it's hard for a kid that age to really show a lot of fear without being just a little, little cartoony. But yeah. I think, I think um, Kubrick did a very good job at, at getting the most out of this kid. Especially I read uh, a little thing that said he didn't know he was making a horror film when yeah. he was making it. He, uh, the kid thought he was making a, just a drama. And this goes to a little side note, which is, you know, in preparation, we both, we both watched a film called the film worker on Netflix which is about Stanley Kubrick's assistant, a director, but really just the Swiss Army knife of filmmaking. Uh, it's a fantastic documentary. Leon Vitali. And he's just, he was Kubrick's right-hand man. Oh, yeah. And go alluding to what you're saying about Danny not knowing that he was actually making a real scary movie, it had to do a lot with Leon. Yeah. And I was doing some research, and what Leon would do is before scenes, especially if the scenes carried some kind of, uh, you know, horrific thing or just the dialogue was scary or just the interaction of the actors would have been a lot for a kid to take in. Leon would take him off set to a back room and they would play uh, in, a, in a childish fashion and kind of go over the scene in a, in, a, in a way that was playful to a child. Mm-hmm. And that would kind of ease Danny up for whatever was about to happen on set when the cameras rolled. And when you watch that documentary, you start to realize that Kubrick probably wouldn't have been Kubrick in his later films without Leon. Yeah, this is a great film. I mean, I would suggest anyone go that's like that's like me and just loves right. Kubrick films. And even if you don't and you just have a good appreciation for Kubrick, this is a real interesting film to watch and, and see what how much of an impact Leon Vitali had on Kubrick's filmmaking even if you're just a film buff which you are if you're listening to the show I, what is fascinating it's absolutely fascinating i mean this guy gave up and i don't want to get too far into it but he gave up a lucrative acting career that was starting to take off to just basically be kubrick's bitch essentially and just do whatever kubrick needed but i loved that here's one thing one takeaway and then we'll move on okay what i loved about leon vitali is that he had a lucrative acting career. He was really aspiring and doing well. Mm-hmm. And he had the passion to go, I ran across a guy who is a master yes. at what he does. Those masters come few and far between. They really do. They really do. It goes for filmmaking. It goes for sports. You know, these things only come around once every decade, maybe longer. Right. So, like, for him to have the intuition to say, look, I want to leave this because I think I might be able to jump on this bandwagon of this master and learn all these things. I love that because he ended up being so crucial, but also learning so much and Mm -hmm. just enjoying his time. Whereas there's no way of knowing he may have actually enjoyed his time as an actor. 
over the long run, I mean. For sure. And you look at in the film now, and he loved every minute of it. Oh, he absolutely did. Even when it got hard and Kubrick became very difficult, which he was very known to be, he still kept with it and he still kept doing it because he was learning so much and he was making a difference in cinema. But give him give him props for recognizing the master. It's like if I was a basketball player and and all of a sudden had an opportunity to go train with LeBron James. Right, right. And then said, nah. Right. No recognition. It's in, and he even says everything was about Stanley. Yeah. Everything I did was everything, my waking, every waking hour he had was about Stanley Kubrick. And that's also interesting because if we go back now to The Shining, uh, there's some elements to that where we give so much credit to Kubrick for his films. And there's so many other components that play mm-hmm. into that. One of them for me is is the performances. We were talking about Shelley Duvall, but in particular, we'll get into this a little deeper, but th- have this sitting in the back of your mind, which how much Jack Nicholson deserves credit for this film. Oh, Jack, Jack Nicholson. We'll, we'll get into that. I can't, I can't say enough about him. I can't wait to get to that. So they're in the bathroom. Danny, now here's the other thing that happens is we know Danny's a clairvoyant, but we also get a glimpse into the catastrophes and the murders that mm-hmm. happened at the hotel. We get that famous blood scene in the elevators because Danny is, Tony is basically telling Danny through these visual images of what happened. Right. We see the blood. We see the two twins with the axe. We see... Uh, and then we see Danny screaming, and then it cuts to Danny in this almost catatonic state on the bed with the doctor. So he's gone into some kind of, you know, disillusionment. He's now out of it. He can't comprehend what he's seen, and there's a doctor there, and his mom's worried about why he's unresponsive. Mm -hmm. And so, once again, we see a, a mother worried and 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 but it's interesting because then danny sleeps now he's he's kind of come out he's 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 come out of the the premonition that he saw and he's in sleep and the the, the mother and the doc Wendy and the doctor go out into the living room they start talking and i want to ask you about this scene because the doctor starts kind of playing it off like it's all okay he's just a kid right right and his mother's still a little bit worried and then she starts talking she starts talking to the doctor about Danny's experience at school and how they had to pull him out of school and all these kind of things and it gets into this thing about Danny being injured and all this stuff and the doctor asks why and then she defends Jack she totally just underplays it makes it seem like it's no big deal uh, and basically Jack dislocated Danny's shoulder he he yanked him too hard and it dislocated his shoulder now up to this point we're still see because we haven't established really that Jack's an alcoholic, right? In the movie, it's not established up to this point, right? Not at all. Um, she does say that he came home and he had been out late, mm-hmm. and so you, you can, I guess you can insinuate that he was, you know, that she says drinking and stuff, and he was, but like, it could have just been a long day. Like it's For not, sure. it's not completely insinuate. It's not like in your face, like this guy is crazy alcoholic, right? Right. But the mom does defend him. Wendy defends him and makes it sound like it was a pure accident. And then she talks about, she apologizes. Oh, for sure. And she's like, well, now he has never touched. And then we start getting to the idea that, okay, maybe Jack has a problem because she starts apologizing for him. And then he promised her that he would never drink again. Right. So now we're starting to understand a little bit that Jack's got a potential alcohol. He's an alcoholic. Yes, for sure. 
But I just find it interesting that she defends his actions. I think it's, I mean, it's very, from what I hear, it's it's a very common thing in, you know, families who have abusive parental figures. It's it's very, and if, if, especially if a woman's in an abusive relationship, it's very easy and common for them to apologize. Oh, they don't, they don't really mean it. They didn't really mean it. You know, it, it was a tough day for them and making excuses. And I think that kind of plays up that that little aspect of it. That's a good point. And it's unfortunate, but it does happen oftentimes in reality, which is sometimes they'll condone it in a sense that they'll just let it go. Yes, exactly. I made a film, my first short film ever, and it actually dealt with this subject. Oh, did it really? Yeah. So now that you bring that up, I start thinking to myself, mothers do do that. And it's not yep. it, it's an unfortunate thing and it's sad. Um, and they, they have a hard time leaving a situation, mm-hmm. um, even when it's at the, 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 the betterment for, of their, with their child, it's tough. So I, I, I actually, when you look at it in that, in that way, we don't, I don't love that Wendy is essentially defending Jack's actions, but at the same time, there's a believability to it that that's something that happens in real life and it's hard for women to get out of that situation. Absolutely. And it, it also, uh, it makes it more believable of why Jack acts the way he does early on in the film. We'll get to that when they're driving yeah. to the to the hotel and everything. Yeah. Now, an- another question on this topic in 2019 writing film, writing screenwriting, does this character of Wendy, does the movie end now? What do you mean? Does is there an apologetic wife here, or does is she immediately? I th- I think there is take the stance and and she's out and defends the child. Uh, I think they're ab- I think do you know what I mean because I I do think it does show and it, it's downplayed in this movie, but it does show uh an abusive relationship, an abusive family. So and- we go back to the. The, the authenticity of it that yeah. these are things that happen and it is downplayed and they don't really go into they don't they don't hit on much much on whether or not jack is regularly abusive right and i get the sense that he probably is and if it's not physical it's definitely verbal right but these are the consequences at some point maybe he's chasing you down with an axe you know like and and so i think that maybe you know it doesn't take a, a haunted hotel to drive him crazy yeah that may be uh, that, uh, you know, he's already crazy. He's already crazy, and that that was one of King's contentions with the movie is that uh, Jack started out crazy right. in this, and and that's what I go back to is that I think if you're watching the movie for the first time, that's not necessarily clear. Oh, we, see, we're taught for me. Oh yeah, that he's crazy. Yeah, yeah. For at the beginning, for sure. That's what I'm saying is yes. you're saying in the book that hey. This was something that King was alluding to early on that, that Jack's a psychopath. Uh, well, or he's got he's got serious anger issues. The main thing, yeah, that he's got anger issues. But the main thing was that it was always clear that he loves his family very much, and I'm not sure that's clear at all in the movie. Okay, we're 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 going on two different things here. Yes, so yes, so so he he's got some some a lot of demons. He's an alcoholic. He's been violent, but it's clear that he loves his family. Yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, in, in this movie, he just seems annoyed with them constantly. It, it's not clear in this movie. And what's interesting is I think they hint out on, on a few scenes that we'll get into later. They try. Yes. Um, so so Danny's in the catatonic state. Wendy defends Jack's actions. We, we have a good understanding that, that uh, 
Danny has, he's a clairvoyant. We get a glimpse into the hotel. Um, and then after this premonition that he has and she defends Jack, it does a, a hard cut and we get into an inner title that says closing day. And this is basically another scenic drive. Once again, the VW bug going up the mountains, the orchestral music with the Gregarian sounds and the families embarking on this journey together. Now all three of them driving to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And well, and this, this is when I talk about how it seems like Jack is annoyed with his family. It really starts with this scene from everything yeah. that the wife and kid says. He just seems like he's barely holding on and trying his damnedest not to flip out there. Yeah. He's definitely, uh, there's a weird animosity towards Wendy, mm-hmm. even if it's not spoken, it's just felt. Yes. Yes. And then he has a, a a sarcastic tone. Yes. And they start talking about the Donner party. And then they start talking about cannibalism. (laughs) And he delivers this line, which really drives home the point to what you're saying, which is he said, uh, uh, Danny alludes to his mom that I know all about cannibalism. Mom, I saw it on the TV and Jack goes, see, it's okay. He saw it on the television. Exactly. Exactly. And you see that little glint of insanity uh, in Jack's eyes. It's It's also partly, you know, Jack Nicholson in any role. Right. Oh, for sure. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's almost like you can sense the the, the part insanity in whatever role he plays and that glimpse and that glimmer in his eye. Well, and so uh, on my other podcast, we have a, an ongoing debate on who's a better actor, whether it's uh, Jack Nicholson or Robert De Niro. Okay, good. Uh, I, I say it's Jack Nicholson just because I think he's made more better movies. Um, but my, my, my co-host, James, my buddy, he thinks that Jack Nicholson is just always insane and always plays the same kind of guy. I totally disagree. I disagree, too. But he's like, he's like he, he plays pretty much the same character in every time. Like he's, still got, he's got those, those same little ticks and everything. There's a little bit of physicality that that transcends each role, right? For Nicholson, but I agree with you. Which and that's a hard, that's a great debate, by the way. Yeah, we've had it going on for years. We anybody comes on the show, we take tally. We take a tally. I'm gonna say that Nicholson is the better actor. I think as far as as far as uh, acting wise, they're pretty. They're they're like neck and neck, but Nicholson's. Uh, his filmography is so much better. De Niro has so many bad movies that he's done. It's, he's got, it's almost like he'll do anything. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of bagels, a lot of zeros. Yeah, like like nasty grandpa or whatever. I mean, just terrible, terrible. Movies. And it's almost like Nicholson stepped out of the game on top. He yes. like Jordan to that shit. Exactly. He's like, I'm fucking leaving. Right. right. And I'm, hang- I'm the jersey's getting retired. Yep. Exactly. And I'm on top. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mark this one for me. I can't wait to tell James. Yeah, it'll be awesome. I'm gonna go with Nicholson. That's not to take away. I love De Niro. Right, right. But and we'll to get into this quickly. Uh, I was actually thinking about this and Nicholson's performance in this film and all those other films too that I really love. I love Chinatown. Mm-hmm. I love One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. I actually like the original. I like the, the not the original, but the 1989 version of Batman's Batman, Joker. As in the Joker. I mean, I never would have thought if I was casting that movie, I never in a million years would have cast Jack Nicholson. But now I can't think of the Joker without thinking of him. And you go back to Easy Rider, which is one of his first films. He actually started in horror with a movie I believe called The Terror. Oh, really? He was in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. 
And so, but anyway, his filmography is pretty deep. Yeah. And here's how I would differentiate De Niro from Nicholson. And it's a hard one to do. But if I was to take over the last 100 years, the Mount Rushmore mm-hmm. of actors, Nicholson might be on he that Mount on Rushmore. That. Yeah, Rushmore. I agree. But he's a Laker fan, so you got to dock him some points. That's true. I got my jazz hat on, so <laughs> I I'm, know. I'm, I'm ready to talk Lakers anytime. Yeah, us jazz fans hate the Lakers. That's right. But he might be on that Mount Rushmore, and his performance is is so appealing for me in this film, and we'll get more into that as we as we move about it. Now we're into closing day. Like we were saying, they're driving up to the through the mountain, uh, getting to the to this new job. Basically, Jack's accepted this job. He's bringing the family up with him. The job runs from May, or sorry, runs from October to May, um, and they they're like we said, they're talking cannibalism. And then they get up there, and they're introduced to, uh, in the lobby, um, Almond comes around, and then also Bill, who's Almond's side guy, side his right-hand man. And they go, Jack, where are your things? And uh, Almond goes, hey, Bill, will you, uh, will you get Jack's things? And then, and then Bill, like, he, he's so angry. He says, fine. Well, and I why is what's the deal with Bill? Is my point. I I don't know. Like I couldn't because uh, we also watched Room Two Three Seven in preparation. I hate that movie, by the way. I don't love it. We'll get I into that it. deeper. I can't stand this, it. Anyway. this is gonna be the longest podcast. I know, in the seriously, world. <laughs> it's okay uh, though. But so I I I was watching that, and you know, a lot of these people are talking about Bill, and they're saying that he delivers it in a very angry tone. I didn't see it that way. I just thought it was like an old. I don't want to say old timey, but almost like an old time actor. Yeah. Just just delivering. You know, that's how they spoke. Fine. The, OK. Like, the, the, I, I didn't I didn't take it that way. And even when they when in that movie, in that documentary, Room 237, when they try to present it that way, I still couldn't. I, get. I don't board. love that documentary either. And we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. But I do. When I was rewatching this, I, I actually do agree with them in that part. Bill seems cranky. Well, I mean, he's, he's just. And so I don't know if there's anything deeper to Bill, and we're probably over, we're probably looking into it too far, and there's probably. really not anything about Bill right. that matters. But he just seems so cranky, and he's like, "Fine," you know. He, he seems angry in every shot that he's in. That's what I mean, because yeah, there's actually but, a cutaway in the office when Allman, Jack, and Bill are talking, and it hangs on a, a medium close-up cutaway mm-hmm. to Bill, and he's got a real angry look on his face right right so anyway i don't know what bill's problem is there's no exposition to explain it i wonder if the book goes into bill any deeper do you remember it all yeah it's been a while um so uh they end up getting a walk through the hotel almonds taking him through wendy's getting a sense of the hotel this whole sequence i think could have been chopped in half okay uh and I understand why they needed it. You needed to have some sort of understanding of the hotel and the, and the workings of it, the kitchen, the hedge maze, all that kind of stuff. But man, this dragged on and on. Yeah. And I understand it's an adaptation of Stephen King and Stephen King loves this kind of shit. He loves going into deep descriptions about stuff that doesn't matter or matters very little in the, where he could have just cut it into a fourth actually. Well, the one, the one thing they do in this sequence is, they Almond starts talking about when the hotel was built because Wendy asks him. Right. And when we were watching Room Two Three Seven, they go into this elaborate thesis about 
because they say 1907 to 1909. And while it was being built, while the Overlook was being built, there were various raids from Native Americans. Right, because it's built on, on the a, premise. Because it's uh, built on a burial ground. Right. And so that's the only hint of it, really, in the movie, where they allude to the fact that there was... I mean, there is something to say there. For sure. Whether you believe Room 237 or not, there is something to say about the fact that a bunch of white individuals came in and just bombarded oh, an Indian burial ground and then built a hotel on it. Absolutely. You absolutely. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not cool. Not very not cool. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's this thesis in Room 237 about the the thesis of this film being about the the oppression of Native Americans. Right. And that was one of the more plausible ones in that movie. I just don't think it holds water all the way through. Like, I don't think it's alluded to enough. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of a stretch. Oh, for sure. Uh, and we'll get into those. Those are fun ones to get into. So then they get to the gold room, uh, Wendy and Jack and Almond and Bill. And then we're in, and then Danny comes back and we're introduced to uh, Dick Holleran. Yes. This is played by Scatman Crothers. And um, he was actually a prolific voice actor. He did in the 80s. He did Transformers in the 70s. Oh, did he? Yeah. In the 70s, he did uh, the Disney film Aristocrats. That's interesting because his voice is so Mm -hmm. soft-spoken, at least in this movie. I don't know if if it's just his acting ability in this, but it's so soft and kind. I don't really think voice actor when i hear it he did some earlier films with nicholson in the 70s but but a lot of his stuff came as a voice actor interesting and i i actually really loved his performance uh because he did feel like a dependable fun guy who really has concern for this this little boy what we learn later is that he's the antithesis to jack yes in every possible way and that's a cool dynamic yeah at least for it's cool if you're danny yeah for sure (laughs) for sure because you actually have a father figure that cares about you right so we meet uh dick holleran and he's what's interesting about dick aside from the fact that he has compassion and sympathy for danny and he really cares for him and he he kind of is the father that you end up wishing jack would be exactly um they get to the kitchen they're they're taking a tour and they get to the kitchen and then they get to the, the storage room. And so they're in the canned storage room. And this is where we, we get the, every time they do the shining gift, there's this kind of high, did you notice this in the audio? There's like a, a, a sh- not a shriek, but a high pitched noise. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're right. And then right. it shows hollering and he's look, he's talking to Wendy, but this high pitched noise kind of escalates and crescendos keeps going up and it drowns it drowns his voice and wendy's voice and it drowns their voices and mutes them and then we hear the ability to for him to talk through his mind to danny right and ask him if he likes ice cream can you imagine if that had happened i mean i would shit a brick if all of a sudden some dude's thinking in my head well, you got to remember, though, in the bathroom in the previous scene, Danny saw a bunch of twins chopped up That's true. and a this blood hallway <laughs> elevator. This is pretty minor compared to that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking I'll take do you like yeah. ice cream? Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, That's a, more fun, as a kid. For right? sure. Um, but nonetheless, it's revealed that Holleran shares the shining, mm-hmm. the capability to, to see and to read minds and also foresee the future. And that shrieking sounds kind of interesting. Um, 
The, and then he delivers, and as they're leaving this, this place, he delivers, Holleran delivers the best line of the movie when he's talking about apricots and prunes. And he tells Wendy, you got to keep regular if you want to be happy. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. So he's just a little reminder yeah, exactly. from Holleran to stay regular. That's right. That's Eat your right. fiber, kids. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and then immediately asks Danny if he wants ice cream so he can go get the runs from the exactly uh, the dairy product. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. I just thought that was a funny line of dialogue. But they come out of there, and then um, they uh, Danny uh, Holleran takes Danny to get ice cream, and Wendy and Jack proceed with all men on the tour, and it kind of intercuts between the two while they're out getting introduced to the gold room, the, the big ballroom that's there, and they go see the liquor, uh, uh, the bar, I should say. Yep. And there is no liquor. It's all been vacated from the premises for insurance purposes. They all take it out. Right. And I always find that interesting because later that becomes a very trivial piece to the story, mm -hmm. you know. And now the liquor cabinet or the liquor bar is empty. Right. And later on it becomes very, very, very strong piece to the story. Um, and as... I found something interesting about the hotel because we haven't really talked about the actual environment, the actual space that we're talking about, the, the overlook. Mm -hmm. And as they're walking up to the ballroom, Wendy, they're talking about how beautiful it is. And they're, they're talking about how now everybody's vacating the premises and all the workers and the staff are leaving. And um, he's like, before 5 p.m. or after 5 p.m., you know, it's going to be empty. And Wendy says... You know, yeah, the place, this place will be just like a ghost ship. Yeah. Once again, very true. This alluding true. to these concepts, because you look at, and I, this is how much prep I did was I looked up ghost ship. I mean, we all know innately probably what that right. means, but it's a vessel with no living crew aboard, and it may be a ghostly vessel in folklore or fiction, or it's a real ship found adrift with its crew missing or dead. And it's a complete nod to the totally. overlook. It's a great line. It's a great line because it, 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 that's what it is. 100%, right? That's what that hotel is. It's a ghost ship. Yep. And it becomes one later on in the movie. Yep. So I always found that line to be intriguing. And while we're hearing them go to the bar and hear this line, we're also cutting back to Holleran and Danny who are in the kitchen having ice cream. And if do you remember a little bit about this scene and the importance of it in terms of the interaction between these two? Yeah, they they uh, they talk to each other and, and uh, Holleran basically explains what it means to shine and kind of explains the hotel a little bit and then they talk about room two thirty seven and um, immediately you're creeped out by that room. Immediately you're creeped out by the room and also I'm a little creeped out with Danny's clairvoyance because he actually tells Holleran, you don't like room 237, do you, Mr. Holleran? Yeah, and he asks, he asks what's in there. What's in there? Why yeah. don't you like it? And in the conversation, there was nothing alluded to it. He was exactly. just using his clairvoyant ability. Exactly. And so now I'm really getting, in a in a psychological way, getting really creeped out. For sure. By Danny's abilities. For sure. And then Holleran's very defensive, which immediately tells us again what? That that's going to be a huge crucial element yep. to the film. Absolutely, it's like everything is not only intentional, but it's also some elements to this story as they're laying them out between the characters. Kubrick's like extremely he telegraphs these things. Oh, totally, totally. Right. I mean, well, it's good storytelling. I think that uh, it, what it ends up doing is not setting up any confusion. Right. And it's funny because you can create, and we'll get into this. You can create this world. The 
and these are theories, but you, that, that exist between dead and undead and mm-hmm. ghost and supernatural and real. And you believe that they can exist. Right. Absolutely. And I think he does a real good uh, job at just kind of laying out the stepping stones so mm-hmm. we don't feel utterly confused as the, as the movie trans, as it transpires. Right. Um, and he says to, to Danny, he says, some places, and this goes back to the overlook, are like people. Some shine and some don't. So the overlook shines. Yeah. And God damn if it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up what overlook means. Like there's a couple. There's the verb, of course, which you would fail to notice something. Mm-hmm. Does that play into any of this story at all? Failing to notice? I don't know because it feels like everything is noticed. Okay. Uh, and I agree because I think we're Kubrick's giving us everything to understand it without trying to create mass confusion. We're noticing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, there's nothing. In fact, if anything, it almost seems like there's a lot of importance placed on every little thing. Yeah. Exactly. The other descriptor of it would be a view from above. Which, it, that's exactly what it is. So it, it plays along those lines, I think, a little bit more. like Even from the opening shot. I mean, it's a, it's a wide shot from above. And you, you see, and later on, you see an overhead shot of the maze. Yes. You see an overhead shot of them driving through the woods at the beginning of the thing. It To me, that that's, explains it perfectly. Yep. Yep, 100%. So after this scene um, with Holleran and Danny kind of building a relationship, that comes into play later, too. Um, but right now then it cuts the one thing, uh, it does do well, then it cuts to, uh, one month later. Yeah. We're about 30, 40 minutes into the film and we've already segmented it out from the interview and the closing day. And now we're into one month later and there's this great, this is from the technical standpoint, when the filmmaking standpoint, we see this great steady cam shot. The one that everyone knows where Danny's riding his trike yeah. through the hallways yep. and we're hearing great shot. It's a beautiful shot. And it's always in this initial one, it's always following him from behind. Mm-hmm. It's never really in front in this up to this point. We're only following from behind. Does does that have any significance, do you think? Or is that just because of the, the symmetry of the shot and the beauty of how it's composed? I, that that would be my guess. It, it's also you feel like you are Danny kind of exploring the hotel and riding that thing around. And it's actually watching that shot. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Like I feel like I'm him. It's interesting because I almost feel like, and I think you're right because it's more, even it's not a direct POV, but we're observing it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. It just It's kind of a fun shot. I like the sound too, oh. when he goes over the wood and then the carpet. It's the sound, the use of sound in this whole thing is amazing. It's great. Yeah. And you're right. It kind of does give us like a little nod to being a kid. Totally. Like a child that's totally. just like, I'm going to explore this place like, and ride around. I want to do that. I yeah. want to be able to ride a big wheel throughout a hotel, exactly. an empty hotel. It'd be so much fun. Yeah. So I think it's just giving us a little calm before the storm mm-hmm. with Danny's character. Um, and and kind of reminding us that he's a kid because the stuff he's seen up to this point, even these right. premonitions and the conversations that he had are very adult oriented. Right. It's a great steady cam shot. Beautiful. Kubrick, by the way, not the first to use the steady cam. But throughout most of his films, particularly this film, beautiful use of the movement. Oh, un- unreal. The movement's yeah. beautiful. Um, and, and while this is happening and Danny's exploring the hotel on his, on his trike, Wendy comes back to the room uh, with breakfast for Jack. 
And this is where I start to, there's a couple things here. We're talking about Jack and, you know, a couple things here with, with Jack's responses to how Wendy, so she brings in breakfast and I'm still kind of, there's, for me, there's still an endearing factor about how he responds to, to Wendy. I, I don't see it in this because this, okay. this is the part where I'm, I'm, I'm I don't quite. I don't get the choice that I don't. I don't know if this was Jack Nicholson's choice or if this is Kubrick's choice, but it almost feels like he's got this sarcastic tone. It feels for, disingenuous. Yes, it, it feels like it's so sarcastic that it almost feels like he's making fun of her. But it's in the context of the conversation. I don't know what he's making fun of her for. So I. I mean, he's saying, you know, I. I love it here. This. You know, I felt like I've been here before. That, those are very serious lines that are important to his character, but I it, he's, it's delivered in such a way that feels like he's he's being a smartass. Yeah, like he's he, he doesn't feel that way at all. And I love that we perceive it entirely different, because I actually look at it and go, once again, he's he's kind of he's kind of fun to listen to. And he's, oh, he's totally fun. He's for not, sure. but 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 in a way that he doesn't seem threatening to Wendy, and he doesn't seem like he's being for me crazy. To yeah, that's interesting. He says, you know. It, it seems, for me, it doesn't seem disingenuous. It actually seems genuine. And he's like, you know, I love it. I do. I really, That's really do. Maybe, I don't know if it's just Jack Nicholson. And no, it's just it's just the perception of the viewer. Yeah. That's the subjectivity of movies, which is fun. Well, and I think uh, part of that is definitely um, uh, coming from reading the book first. Because reading the book, you can tell Jack Torrance is trying very hard to make a, a clean start with his family. Put the booze behind him. Get his writing career going, and he loves his family very much. He's fighting for them, and he's not crazy. He's trying to put his demons behind him, whereas in, in this adaptation, he's crazy from the very beginning. And I think that's where I'm having a hard time relating to him because I, I already you can already see it in his eyes that he's nuts. See, and I don't get that quite yet, and I'll tell you when I do, but I haven't got the full crazy yet. I've got okay. hints of it in the car when he gets for a little sure. aggressive. But I haven't got the full-blown, this guy's crazy from the get-go. Okay. And in this scene, he tells Wendy how much, she says, maybe take me for a walk. And he's like, and it's very kind of a gentle response yeah, for me. Because really he's is. like, well, I suppose I should do some writing first. Right. And he's not like threatening or mean to her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but the way he's talking to her, it's like he's talking I don't get about, it. It's like I don't he's get talking it yet. to a pet. Mm -mm. It's like, yeah. That's cute that you think I love that. that subjectively we have yeah. two different approaches to oh, it. Oh, I've totally interpreted differently. Uh, and it's also filmed in a way that is interesting because the shot's actually filmed through a mirror. Oh, yeah. The first yep. half of it. Yep. Then it cuts. And he's shown in a mirror a lot. Yeah. There are a lot of shots of him in a mirror, which is, I think, subtextually, that's fantastic. Well, mirrors are throughout the movie. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the scene with Danny in the bathroom, and then there's other scenes in there. And, and so in this scene, there's the mirror and then it, it cuts to the actual, sh not using the mirror as the mm -hmm. reflective shot. And he talks about how he had deja vu. And he talks about how, when he was there for the interview, right. how everything seemed, I knew everything around every corner. It all felt familiar. Yep. And so once again, I almost think that he's alluding, you know, Kubrick or the storyteller in this case is alluding to something a little deeper and menacing about the hotel and also Jack's relationship to the hotel. Definitely. Definitely. Do we have, and so, so for me, I'm not convinced I'm not with you on the, uh, and that's good. That's fine. 
I'm not with you quite yet on Jack's turn. I don't think he's turned quite yet. Well, I don't think there's a turn because I don't think he ever was not insane. See, I think there's a turn, and I'll get into it. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you when I, when I, when I really see him come out and we see full Jack. It's like he vamps out. Oh, totally. He totally vamps out. <laughs> but Jack's on... Uh, things are always backwards in this movie, and that's another reason why I think mirrors are used a lot. Um, does that make sense? Like, they feel out of place. It, it becomes jarring and a little off. When you look in a mirror, things are reversed. It's disorienting. So it, it becomes a form of disorientation. I think he's using the mirrors just to play into that idea. Then it cuts to... Uh, after this conversation, it cuts to a shot of the empty page on a typewriter, right? And Jack's throwing the ball against the wall. Uh, improvised, by the way. Oh, Just really? Just a side note. I know it's a, it's a silly thing to improvise, but in the script it says Jack is doing nothing. <laughs> I don't know how you even, what, what does that even mean? So, uh, you know, Nicholson grabs a, a ball and starts throwing it off the wall. And I like it, too. I like it a lot because it shows the emptiness of the hotel. I like when they're doing things that you could never do when the hotel's full. Yeah, that's fun. I love that. Because you, you kind of want to, like you were exactly. you kind of want to do that. What it also shows for me, like having written screenplays, and I, I don't consider myself a writer because I don't do it enough, mm -hmm. but I do enjoy it when I can. I'll write, and I have written things. It it shows the exact feeling you have as a writer. Totally. Oh, absolutely. The page is empty, and you're throwing a ball against the wall. And you, there, it's just a blank space in your head, and you can't. And the more you try and focus on it, the worse it gets. And I think for me, a little bit, because Kubrick's a writer, too, he's playing into that out of his own. There's a sense of of his own experiences. It's just the feeling of being a writer. You know, yeah, he's playing sure. into that a little bit and just like getting to a point where you're like, I don't know where the hell even to start. Right. Because if you go back to the previous scene, he even alludes to it in the script. He says, do you have any ideas? And he says, oh, lots of ideas. Not any good ones. <laughs> it's true, though. So it's I, true. I, I love that he's playing into the writer aspect of it. Um, Nicholson's throwing it on there. The only thing you see on the table when you see the shot of the typewriter, a pack of marble a pack of uh, some pencils and a cigarette butt burning. Now this is fine. This is where, see, and, and we could take a contrary opinion here. The one thing that you would potentially be missing, it, what's the one thing missing in this shot if you're an isolated writer? Uh, a, glass of, a glass of bourbon or something like that. A, a bottle of scotch. Yeah, a bottle of scotch. Something, That's it. Yep. right? So, but here's the thing. Jack's sober. Yep. Right? So, um, and there's, of course, no alcohol on the premises. It's not there. That's been removed. Um, so you could really dive deep into that and say, well, you know, Jack is trying a little bit for his family because he's trying to position himself in a place where he can't tip the bottle. Absolutely. Right. It's not even possible. It's not even possible. Um, but I thought to myself, the only thing missing was the bottle of scotch. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> and you know why. Um, then it, then it cuts to, uh, let's see, there he goes. Oh, we get to the maze. So this is, I know this isn't in the book. No, but this, the hedge is, a, maze. this is a change that I think is fantastic. In, in the book, they have hedge animals that come to life. 
I don't like that. Which is stupid. And I, I don't know if you've seen the Shining remake. I haven't seen the miniseries. It's like Stephen King approved. It's terrible. Like, it's it's terrible. I think it's, he produced it or something. I think he did. And it's it's very by, it it's, follows the book exactly. And it's v- so boring. It's so boring. So uh, the Hedge Maze, I absolutely love. I think this was a fantastic addition. I think, uh, and then once again, every little thing is alluding to someone chasing you. And what I mean is, Wendy and Danny are going out to the hedge maze and they're playing a mother-son game, which you would do with a kid. And Wendy's like, I'm going to get you. Right, right. I'm going to get you. You better run fast. And you're like, that is Jack at the end of the movie. It is. It absolutely is. So I love that Kubrick's just, once again, painting it out there for us and not trying to hide anything. Right. Do Do you know, so there's a line as they're running out of the hotel to go to the hedge maze, Wendy says... Last one there has to clean up America. Yeah. What does that mean? Is is this was it like an allusion to a commercial at the time or something? Or I know that Kubrick was heavily uh, influenced, not influenced. Did a lot of heavy research into not into advertising. Mm-hmm. When you watch that doc, we yeah, were, we were talking for sure. And that and I've actually read other research, and he was very interested in that topic of. Um, what do they call it when you're um, subliminal advertising, the subliminal messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if it was just a knock on a commercial potentially like yeah, clean may- up America or possibly, and this is a stretch here. I don't know. We could do some research, a political campaign. Cause it, could it sounds be, yeah. to me like clean up America. Like it sounds like, uh, for sure a presidential run absolutely yeah i just wasn't sure if it was a thing in pop culture at the time or if there's some importance to that this is the problem with kubrick is like i don't know what is actually important and what's kind of just uh, there it, when i come in with my kubrickian i always i just say everything's intentional yeah yeah every single thing so he's got to have had some reason or at I least mean, I've built him up in my mind to right, have that. Right. And he's got to have a reason. There. For sure. Yeah. But she does say, clean up America. Danny wins the race. And he says, you got to clean up America. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so whatever it means, it could mean something important. Any, any comments out there would be, would be uh, suggested for us. So they get into uh, the maze. Once again, um, there's this suspenseful music playing. Um, and it's alluding to being chased and the feeling of being chased. And it's also foreshadowing later what happens in the hedge with Jack and Danny. Fantastical. The other thing is we go back to the steady cam. It's this really great, beautiful steady cam shot, uh, really leading the viewer through the maze. It's just beautifully yeah. shot. I love it. It's the depth of field is so deep. The staging's deep. You see everything. Everything in that maze is fantastic. It's so cement. It's just perfectly. Everything's composed. Mm-hmm. The composition is just, it's it's great. It's great. And there's kind of a thesis that I developed here. I don't know if I'm fully behind it yet. Okay. This is my own thesis. And is that this is, because we're about 40 minutes into the movie, and we've been introduced to some things. There's some mystery the mystery box is definitely there. Yep. We're not 100% sure on everything. I, I want to know what you think about if there's a significance to the hedge scene and why we're just playing music while they watch through, walk through the hedges. Uh, it, and it cuts to a shot inside of Jack looking over the miniature right. of the hedges outside. And he can see them playing around. And I like that. I thought that was pretty cool. This is kind of, I don't want to say an issue, but it drove me crazy that Nothing really happens for a long time in this movie, but there's a lot of creepy music going on 
at not creepy times and there's you know it's just it's and a lot of creepy editing and to me at some point i don't think i'm there yet in the movie but at some point it's like you got to start showing me something if you're going to keep teasing me like this so to me i don't i don't have any theories i'm interested to hear yours but to me i'm just like let's get going let's i've heard all this music let's get going i kind of feel like and like i say i don't even know if i'm 100 percent committed to this but when i was re-watching we're starting to get into two worlds. Okay. We're at the Overlook. We've established that there's some kind of shining ability with the actual Overlook in the, the facility, the right, place, the right. actual location. And also, uh, it cuts to that shot where Jack's overlooking the miniature hedge mage, which you mentioned, and I love the shot. It's beautiful. It's a cool transition into mm-hmm. to him seeing what they're seeing. It's it's very godlike, right? In the in, in the sense of like being able to oversee and that idea of a spiritual being overseeing everything that's happening below. And it's very well done, especially for 1980 or 1979 when they did it. Yeah, beautifully done. And be, the be, you know what do what do mazes represent? What what do they represent? Confusion disorientation confusion anxiety um uncertainty mm-hmm. you know lack of clarity anyhow wherever where you want to describe it so there's this a little bit of prevailing thesis there for me that um before we've all kind of, we've been into everything's been reality mostly right the yep. premonitions are there but they're still believable and I feel like at this point, when they're going through the maze and they come out on the other end, at least in the story, they come out on the other end, mm-hmm. that it moves into the hybrid world. For sure. Which is the ghostly supernatural mixed with reality. Is this where the hotel gets its hooks in Jack? I think it already has that. But I think for the characters, at least Wendy and them and like even Jack and we're talking about when he starts to turn, Mm -hmm. this is they're going through the maze and it's symbolically going, look, they come out of the other end of this confusion. Right. But they come out the other end in a different setting. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. Because the next shot is Tuesday. Inner title. (laughs) Another jump scare. And. It's the storms coming, it's the newscast, and it's predicting bad weather. And that's also a physical representation for me, which is a change in environment. You kind of feel it. Like if you live in a state that has four seasons and you transition from fall to winter or winter to spring, it's a change in feeling and in in a sense, the change of the world. Definitely. And so they're predicting this storm. And once again, it cuts to Danny. But my point, real quickly before I move on to the to Tuesday, I think this is where it transitions into that other world. Okay. Well, and I, I'm just wondering because the shot of Jack. We're going to get to that. Uh, well, I mean, just with uh, over the maze, overlooking the maze. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, it, it almost feels like he is the hotel at this point. Like the hotel, he's become part of it because yeah. now he can see what the hotel sees. It's the Overlook Hotel overlooking the maze, and now he is sharing in that view and i agree with that and what i mean is when when danny and wendy come out on the other end they're now part of that environment okay gotcha. whereas before they weren't right so going through this maze is metaphorically like we've 
we're going from one world to another. Okay. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Because I think Jack's already part of the hotel, and we'll get into that with the ending shot. Yeah, for sure. And so I agree with you there. But then the story goes Tuesday. The storm's coming. Um, it shows the beautiful shot again of Danny just riding that hotel mm-hmm. on his trike, having a grand old time. I can see my seven-year-old loving. Do, oh, to I know. Loving to do that right now. Um, then we we hear the ominous music again. It starts to encroach. Everything leads up to this because then Danny's riding down the hallway and he passes by room 237 and he stops. So now we're not behind him anymore. We're still behind him, sorry, in the camera perspective. And he turns and he looks and he sees the number, right? Yep. And curiosity. Of course. Tells a kid, don't do that. What do you do? Going to go do it. He gets off his trike and he goes and he tries to open the door and it's locked. Yep. So he can't get in. And he's obviously having some feeling, but he gets back on his trike and he just rolls down the hall. And so room room 237 is locked. Then it cuts to Jack typing. The music begins. Like you mentioned, we have this mix of this kind of melodic. There's a little bit of melodic piano string in there mixed with these Mm -hmm. striking cymbals and all this crazy stuff. Wendy walks up. He snatches the paper right before she can watch and see what he's typing. He snatches it and crumples, like hides it from yep. her, you know? And this is where Jack shows his true colors. I had a feeling this is going to be the point where you, where you kind of realized. And the reason is, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, is now she's entered his world mm-hmm. with the hotel. And once he hides what he was writing from her, and we know later that's conveyed what that is. But then he blows up, right? Yeah, he loses his shit. He starts telling her, don't fucking come in here when I'm typing. Right. And just really lays in. And then I go, this is finally where I, where I go as a viewer. Like, he's batshit crazy. Yeah. He's lost it. He's lost it. For me, the thesis then is, it goes back to what I was saying. It's her encroachment on his premises. Yes. Does that make sense? Yep. yep. So so anyway, he blows up, and now the true colors are shown. Well, it's funny because uh, typically, like I don't know, how, you know, at, at your house, if you have a, a room you work in, like I have, I have my office upstairs, and it's kind of, it's just a little cramped little room. It's a, it's a mess because I got all my stuff, and when I'm in the middle of an edit, I just, I, I'm living there basically, uh, and it's my own little world. And, uh, you know, the kids will come in or the girlfriend will come in and it's it's fine. But I do feel like they're encroaching on my world. But it's this cramped little room. He's got this giant foyer, which is basically the whole of the hotel. And he's saying, you can't come in here like this is it's a giant space. Like it's almost impossible for her not to come in there at some point. He also lays out rules when you hear me type. Yes. Yes. Or I'm not typing. Right. Right. Basically, don't come in. You're right, though. He's kind of got this grand space. But here's the other thing, because I've been in that situation, too, just like you're uh, mentioning, which is where you're in your office. You're working on a project. Maybe you're on a phone call. You're doing something important, so mm-hmm. to speak, for work. Excuse me. You're doing something important. Uh, I was actually on a phone call the other day, a meeting, and my nine-year-old breaks through the door. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of, I didn't blow up like Jack. But it's immediate, like, what? Close the door, yeah, close the exactly, door. Exactly, exactly. Like, you yeah. know, protective of whatever it didn't, you know. But the point is, like, 
this is where I know he's batshit crazy because even in those circumstances, I'm not going to go to that extent exactly. to tell someone to leave. Exactly. So now we know he's illogical and he's got anger, man. He's got anger issues. Right. Beyond well, and it, it also feels to me like he's telling her, this hotel is mine. This is all mine. And that goes back to now she's entered on his, into his exactly. world, so to speak. Exactly. And then um, after this happens we were introduced to room 237 it's locked we see jack and wendy jack loses his shit goes crazy she's entered his world so to speak then it cuts to another inner title says thursday and this is a very short inner title and this is where it also backs up and validates what we were talking about in the previous scene wendy and danny are outside playing in the snow Mm -hmm. like a mother and son would yeah having a good time Playing in the snow, taking advantage of the funness that's out there. Yep. The shot then cuts in, and it's actually a zoom. It's not a push in, it's a zoom lens, you know? Yep. And it's this really kind of high shriek sound again, almost like the shining sound. And it's the long zoom in on Jack's face, a little bit a bright scene, very broadly lit. He looks very pale and white. Mm hmm. And it zooms in on him. He never blinks. No. And he's just staring at him. And he's just staring at him. And there is some kind of visceral anger in the way he looks at this. Yes, yes. And so this is what I mean. Now he's really turned. That that shot, without even having to say anything before, now he's losing his damn mind. Yes, yes, exactly. And it happens pretty abruptly too, from uh, from that point where he blows up to there. It, it's it escalates very quickly his insanity. Right, and that's all it is for the Thursday intertitle. Boom, done. Then it cuts. Boom, Friday. It, there we hear typing. <laughs> you know, again yep. we hear the typing again, and we're always playing back to this sound of the typing, which is like, man, Jack's really writing a good novel. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's. If you've never now. seen it before, you're he's like, he's really, now. he's in it. Yeah. He really, Wendy must have really <laughs> abided by his exactly his his, his demands. He's getting shit done. Uh, <clears throat> and then, uh, d- this is also a point where Danny sees the twins again. So, uh, the line to the and here's the other thing in this scene, the the phone lines to the outside world are now disconnected, so there's no connection, and she has to go to the ham radio and figure out what's happening. But it's also kind of a symbolic metaphor to, hey, look, you can't reach the outside world. Yep. You're in this thing now, uh, which is the hotel. It's more and more isolation. It's more and more isolation. But the the world is actually isolated. Like, we're actually in a supernatural environment. Then it goes, boom, Monday, watching Summer of 42, which is the movie on TV. And then, of course, as you watch Room 237, you realize there's no cable power, no power cable to the television. Yeah, They're watching it. But that's alluding once again to the fact that we're in some mysterious supernatural world. Yeah, I think I think there's some subtext there, but the idea not that, overthinking it, but I yeah, think there's something yeah. hinting at it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then this is an interesting scene. I want to get your thoughts on it because Danny wants to go get his fire truck and play. She says he can't go up there. Dad's sleeping. He says I'll be quiet. He goes up there, and when he walks in the room, Jack's not sleeping. No. He's doing the same exact look that he was doing on Thursday. Sitting there staring. Just looking forward in almost a catatonic state. 
and uh, he sees Danny, and then they have a conversation. And what's the impression of this conversation, the well, interaction between the two? It, this is, it almost is like the last semblance of regular Jack, because what the words he's saying feel kind of, they feel uh legit like they feel very genuine and warm to danny and he assures him he would never hurt him he would never hurt him but there is even in this conversation there's some animosity directed towards wendy when danny says you know would you you wouldn't hurt us would you dad and he says did your mother tell you that there's just this constant anger he feels towards his wife yeah wendy is his crutch for aggression definitely definitely in his mind he's you know um, and there is a little bit of normalcy, so to speak, at least between the conversation of father and son. But you know where I think that comes from for me? Because I think Jack's, he's already lost it, like we mm-hmm. talked about. I think Danny, in some ways, learned to placate his father. Yeah, oh, without a, a, another hint that this is an abusive father, that he's regularly abusive. Exactly. And he knows, how to, he knows where the landmines so are and how to tiptoe around it. having to go into a whole lot of exposition other than the little arm thing, mm-hmm. we know that this is a weird thing that's happened in the past and Danny's just going along with it yes. to a degree. So the father-son uh, scene here uh, builds up some anxiety and also like, it, actually that scene's really tense for me when I watch it. Yeah, for sure. And when it, this is going back to what we were talking about before, when it finally cuts to the inner title that says Wednesday, I'm like, oh good, I'm glad that shit's over. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of the room. Get out of the room, Danny. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Danny's playing again, and then it, on Wednesday now, this is where we're at, and he sees room 237 door open, the key, and he's like asking, hey, mom, are you in there, mom, mom? Yep. And the key is open the door, um, and he enters. He goes in, and what I find funny in this is that while he enters, Wendy is actually now the one maintaining the hotel. Yeah, oh, she's totally taking care of everything. Jack's, Jack's just checked out. It's go, it shows her like doing the boiler and you know doing all the work and everything like yep. this and and uh, and then Jack is still at the typewriter, but he's asleep and he starts screaming. Right. And he's obviously having some kind of dream or nightmare. She goes running over, and this is where it gets real interesting in terms of the dynamic between wife and husband, Mm -hmm. because uh, it's kind of a turning point for me, for Wendy to start to realize that Jack's lost his shit. Um, He's talking to, they they have the dream and Jack's like, he wakes up and, and, and she starts consoling him and he's telling her, Hey, I had this dream. And he divulges all this real dark cryptic shit about chopping Wendy and Danny up into pieces. Right. It's very, it's very graphic and very. Uh, there's, there's no subtlety to it. There's no subtlety, and it's like, do you, t- <laughs> do you tell your wife you had that dream? Right. Or do you just hold it back? I don't know if I don't, I'd go into such detail. I don't know if I'd break into all that detail, but Jack doesn't seem to care. No, he doesn't. But there's a look on Wendy's face, like, hmm. <laughs> it's a little scary. Yeah. Well, and this it, is what I go back to Duvall's uh, performance. Because I actually think like those little subtleties are there, and if you watch them clear enough, like she starts going, "Hmm, this guy's crazy." Oh, for but sure. Based on the physicality of the performance. For sure. Well, and and this is, um, this is the hint. So Kubrick hints that Jack doesn't want to hurt his family. With the, I, and I think it's this one specific scene 
because he says that's the worst the worst dream I ever had in my life, you know, and I dreamt I, I killed you and Danny. And to me, this is the only hint that he's fighting this thing at all. He's got a little regret even for having the dream, even right. though he couldn't have controlled it. Right. It and feels I, bad. I would have liked to seen more of a fight in him because and that's pretty much what the whole book is about. And I don't want to make this, you know, a comparison between the book, but the book is 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 really about Jack's struggle to fight his demons and to fight this force that's that's taken him over. And this is the only time I I see him trying to fight that at all in this movie. A little bit of sympathy in the character. Yeah. For a brief second. For a brief second. Exactly. Right. And also Wendy able to realize that he's this is scary. Yeah. She gets because it's getting real now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, has this dream and then while she's consoling him, Danny walks into the room and they're like, go, dad's okay. She's trying to, to, to kind of subdue it. Right. And she's like, dad's okay. Dad's okay. And and runs over and then notices that his collar and his shirt is ripped and he's sucking his thumb and he's sucking his thumb and he has a big mark across his neck. Like someone tried to either choke him or right you know hurt him and immediately she becomes the good mother i think i love this part i loved it because then i finally go finally she's calling jack out for what he is right she grabs danny and she even though jack didn't do it right it was the supernatural ghost from room 237 she blames jack well it, it, it's almost done in a way where where it's like this has happened before obviously and you know she's tried to explain it away she's tried to apologize and she tried to to make excuses but th- this has happened before obviously and that that's why it's her her immediate go-to that you did this other than the fact that there's no one else in the hotel yeah and what's interesting danny is in a void yeah he's lost yep in because he's sucking his thumb and and then also it cuts to jack and he's also in that once again that catatonic state keep using that word but they're both like lost in this in this in this hotel in this world that they that's been this crazy world can you imagine just being her and just seeing your husband and your kid just gone they're just gone they're the only one left right and that's what's happening they've both experienced quote-unquote the shining uh of the hotel Mm -hmm. and they've, they've fallen into this and um and then you know if if we I mean jump into here I wanted to sorry I got lost and so they're in this void and uh, Jack comes out of the catatonic state and goes to the gold room the ballroom and um, goes and sits at the bar which is empty and he's kind of searching for a drink yeah even though it's not there and he sits down at the bar and he basically says the line. To the effect of like, man, I'd give my my goddamn soul for a glass of beer. Yep. And at the overlook, that can happen. Very quickly. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Immediately. So when you make that offering, yep. uh, at this hotel, there are those possibilities. And this scene I love. This is another reason I love Nicholson in the role. I love this scene um, when when he sits down at the bar. And he's expressing his anger, what you think to be at, to himself. And he's talking about how he wants p- some alcohol. And it's this shot of him kind of looking, breaking the fourth wall, really, looking right into the camera. And then he talked, he's like, well, 
he goes, hey, Lloyd. And you're like, okay, he's really lost yeah, his shit what the now. what going on? Because exactly. he's talking to himself, and it and it's real. Right. And then it cuts back, and you're like, and it see, you see Lloyd, and you're like, oh shit. Now we're really into this this world, right? Of this the is where it finally started to get a little creepy for me. Where it finally, I'm I'm thinking like, okay, this is shit's going. This is bizarre. What's going on is bizarre, and the conversation he has with Lloyd. As if Lloyd's his best friend in the whole world, because he is, because he's, man, he's feeding him booze, and that's all he wants in the whole world. Yeah. To me, that this is where it started to get a little creepy. I love some of his dialogue there, like you mentioned, when he's interacting with Lloyd, and and like you said, he's very familiar with this character, mm-hmm. which could be a lot of things interpreted here, but the familiarity also comes from the alcohol. Absolutely, I'm, I'm back in it. And well, there's that 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 symbolism. Well, he even says, uh, I, "I like you, Lloyd. I always oh, yeah. have. Always have. Always have. Yeah. To me, that you know, there's something going on there. So, see, and I and also believe in the way that it's set up. It's got the subtext of like him drinking and being familiar with the alcohol and feeling comforted in a way. Mm-hmm. But also, it's real. Yeah. This hotel is no joke. Nope. Like it's not just Jack's mind. No. Is it? No. Okay. Definitely not. I'm wondering what your thoughts were on that and if you had anything. And I'll I'll explain why later, but it's definitely not. Yeah, we'll get into those when we're getting a little closer here. Yeah. He spills his. The thing also is he spills out his soul to Lloyd because it's almost like this admission of guilt. It's like a confessional with a priest. Right. He starts talking about that little. He feels a little remorseful, but in an angry way. For sure. About. Danny and about his relationship with Wendy and Wendy always blaming him. And then he opens up about how he hurt Danny's, you know, mm-hmm. dislocated his shoulder. And he's like that. He had papers all over the right. room. Mess my papers. He's trying to push the blame, but he's also accepting some of the guilt and the responsibility in a weird way. For sure. It feels like he does like he's, he's, he's starting to be vulnerable and, and own it a little bit, but then he talks himself out of it Yeah, where he's like, well, but, but you know, he was doing this with my papers and it was a total accident and it wasn't my fault. It seems like he's trying to talk his way out of it. And he's opening up to the world. And in this case to Lloyd and also, yep. you know, so if here's the thing, if Lloyd's real, okay. Which in my world that now it's been created lloyd is real sure does that mean the alcohol has now come back and or is the physical is the alcohol still just i don't not think- there and it's just the interaction and the feeling of i don't think that lloyd's real i think okay. this hotel can well, get to you and i think the hotel can make you see things and feel things that aren't real because we see it later on with the rest of the, the crew, too. So, okay. So he spills his guts out to Lloyd. And we could even, I guess we could even say so much that in the moment of the hotel and the supernatural abilities that it has, obviously for Jack, Lloyd is more than real. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, cut to... Uh, after this conversation, it cuts to the outside world, which is a news, a TV. Uh, once again, oh, we cut yeah. to the news, and it's 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 you know where are we at? Where what room is it is? But it actually pulls back, and it's revealed that uh, we're with Halloran in his room, and he's looking at the blizzard and seeing 
the 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 snow that's coming down and getting a little worried about what potentially is happening at the hotel. Mm-hmm. And it does this once again this kind of long zoom in and he has also a shining capability and he has a premonition about you know what's happening. Yes. And he knows that that Danny is in danger. And because he has that feeling kind of uh fatherly uh you know, uh, set up, not father. He has that kind of fatherly dynamic with Danny. Um, he immediately uh, f- tries to figure out a way to get up there. Which is interesting because it does, you know, the, the weather report does say weather's going to be super warm and the beaches are going to be crowded and he's kind of in paradise here in Miami. Yeah. But he's sacrificing that to go to a blizzard. And, and you see all the lengths he, he goes to get to the hotel to help this kid. So it, it just, it, it, it's more endearing to his character as well. And it's also painting that picture that in some way, he's kind of the father that you, that you hope Danny would have. Yep. Absolutely. You know, drops everything to go help him. Yep. Um, and then, and then back at the hotel, Wendy comes running in and again, now Lloyd is gone and the, and the, the alcohol is gone. And she starts telling him that, there's someone in the hotel with us. She goes, there's someone in the hotel. And he actually is like, responds to her like, are you fucking crazy? Right, right. And he just had a whole conversation with Lloyd. Yeah, she's so, crazy. She's the crazy exactly. one. Right, right. It's very, very Jack Torrance thing. But, uh, but alluding to the fact that someone's in room 237 because yeah. Danny told his mom, hey, this is the person that tried to choke me. So here's... Here's once again where I go, is it real? Because if it's not, is, are we seeing all, Danny looks physically marred. Right. Well, at, at this point. So is this still all playing into people's heads? At this point in the movie, when you're watching it, I, 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 I'm, I was thinking, oh, this might just be, maybe Jack actually did do it. And maybe this isn't all real. And maybe he's just gone crazy at this point. It's later on when, when I, when I changed my tune. Okay. So let's keep that keep that going. But then, so now because she tells him room two three seven, he still has the inclination to go visit room two three seven. Of course, of course. So he goes up there, and he walks in. And what's what I what I kind of find interesting is it's intercutting between uh, Jack walking into the room, not intercutting, but it it starts out with a, a shot of uh, Halloran having premonitions, mm-hmm. and then it goes to a POV steady cam. Of going through room two three seven, and I still think I'm in Halloran's premonition, yep. and then I see a hand come into frame, and I go, "Oh, now we've actually it's a cool transition." It is a cool transition because it, then it changes perspective from Halloran's shining capability, which is what you think you're seeing, right, to actually Jack being in in room two three seven. Right, it's just a cool dynamic technically. So Jack enters the room, and goes into the bathroom, and opens the door, and it's revealed we've got a, a, a naked lady. A gorgeous in, naked lady a gorgeous standing naked there. in the tub. And wouldn't you know, she wants to make out with him. And not only that, <laughs> but first, Jack's actually a little scared. Yeah. Then he then the curtain opens and it's revealed, some boobs are revealed. Right. And Jack gets excited. Well, and I think that's a cool shot as he's going in there and the curtain's half drawn in the bath. <clears throat> and you just see the, the, the hand. I mean, that is scary. That's Real scary. scary. And Jack's actually like, what's behind the curtain? Right. You know, for sure. What's behind the curtain. And then it's revealed once, like we mentioned, we've got a nude woman and Jack gets a little excited. His facial expressions like, OK, 
I'm glad this was the person Finally. that's in the hotel room with <laughs> exactly. us. Exactly. So, and then it's this, what's, the interaction's weird because for me, I'm going, at first he was scared a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then it's revealed that it's a naked woman and he's like, I'll just make out with a ghost woman. Right. Right. I'm, I'm for it. Hey man, he'll drink ghost booze. He'll he'll shoot the shit with the ghost bartender. He doesn't. He, I don't think he cares at this point. I think he's just looking for some sort of. And this is where you know you can you can theorize that the isolation's got to him. I think he just wants to have some sort of interaction, he's some sort having of having some kind of inner fantasies about what the booze and women and exactly. things that he wants to. He wants the simple pleasures, man. Mm-hmm. He misses the simple pleasures. Yep. So he gets gets in there. They have an interaction, and then they they start to to make out. And he's he's thinking life's pretty good in this moment. No no care for Wendy, by the way. No, not, doesn't, doesn't not even a second thought. <laughs> not, not about like all. hey, I'm not even just a little. I'm a married man. Right, right. Never yeah. mind that this woman is in the hotel. Right, and who knows where the and hell she came she, from? Where did she come from? Yeah, but it, I'll make out with her. But I'll make out with her. Yeah. So he gets and then and then it and then it has this cool shot where it it shows him making out and then it cuts to the close up and you can kind of tell that. The woman has changed, mm-hmm. but it's really revealed when it's changed when he sees her reflection in the in the mirror, where she's got the, you know, the decayed backside. Yep, she's rotting, rotting out, and he is immediately. What's interesting, he's like petrified, and so runs out of the room in shock and awe. Right, but he wasn't in shock and awe with this random exactly this is where the world got confusing for a moment because i was like i guess it's what you see what you want like you mentioned and and initially saw a beautiful woman and now he sees a rotting decaying old woman right which completely frightens him but it makes me wonder like that i think the hotel has been trying to seduce him this whole time in order to kill his wife and son why did it turn on him suddenly why did why did it decide all of a sudden now we're going to creep you out right um what's funny is he leaves room 237 in a frantic state and he locks the door no oh, yeah it shows him that. locks the, he, he's like let's keep this door closed right right but i guess everything else can stay open <laughs> because he's really against decaying older women yeah that's gross he has a bias <laughs> totally and then he goes back into the room to check on Wendy and Danny, and he actually, she goes, what was it, this and that, and he denies what happens. Not only that, but he doesn't look creeped out anymore. No, uh, he doesn't. He's not frantic and scared and in shock. I would think that even if you wanted to hide it from Wendy, I would think that he would still be disturbed by what just happened to him. There would still be some anxiety and nervousness potentially, right. yeah. And so he denies it. Um, and then has a little bit of confrontation with her again. He always, when every time he has confrontation with Wendy, and this is alluding to the fact again, he always finds his way back to the ballroom with Lloyd. Mm-hmm. That's his comfort. You know, the alcohol is always there. So every time there's a little confrontation, that idea that I'm going to find relief here is where he always ends up going. Um, and when he's walking back through, like this is th- this part of that scene where. As he's walking through the hallway, he it, it, now we're talking about time and space. Mm-hmm. We hear the music, we see the balloons in the in the hallway. Jack's making his way back to the ballroom, and it's like a twenties slash thirties party in yep. there. And we've we've actually traveled back in time 
to this 20 or 30, you know, this, this party. And, um, as he's talking to Lloyd, getting a drink, he starts walking around and dancing and he bumps into, uh, one of the waiters. Right. And they go into, and he spilled all over Jack and they go into the bathroom and it's revealed that that waiter is Delbert Grady, who is the caretaker from the seventies who killed his wife and children. Yep. Jack actually seems shocked again when Grady reveals his name. Yes. He's like, you're Delbert Grady? So I'm just, the only uh, flaw, not flaw, but the only problem I have trying to figure it out is I want to be, I thought Jack would be immersed entirely into the world Mm -hmm. and just be accepting of everything, but he still has some kind of shock when it's revealed that it's it's Delbert Grady. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and that's, I think this is kind of where I, I struggle. Like I said, why did the hotel turn on him? I, 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 a lot of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we are talking about a ghost hotel. Sure. So, you know, it's not going to all be rooted in reality. But to, it, it is a little confusing. And I do like the dynamic, though, between, and I'm just going to say the hotel and Jack, because at first it's, it's swooning him and it's making him feel like he's the big man. He's the, he's the big shot that his money's no good here. He's drinking for free. Uh, when he gets spilled on, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. You know, everyone's calling him sir. And then in the bathroom is where it changes, where Grady's like, you need to take care of this, essentially. Right. And Jack's put on the defensive a little bit. And you even saw, and I kind of, I rewound this part because I thought it was interesting. And I, this could be me reading into it way too much. But there is a, a moment there. Uh, Grady and Jack are kind of facing each other in a weird way. So Grady's facing down the hallway of the bathroom and Jack's facing down the other hallway to, towards the door. And it keeps cutting back in between. But when the dynamic switches to where the hotel's done making him feel important, now it's time to go to work. Now the hotel's going to flex its muscle and say, I'm the one in charge. Grady very subtly kind of moves forward and Jack moves backwards a little bit. And I don't know if that was intentional or me just reading into it, but I really enjoyed that dynamic of, we're going to play with you. We're going to play with you. Now I'm in charge and I'm going to flex my muscles. You got to take care of this. I love that. I think that r- works really well into the the hotel's world of like using Jack as now using Jack for its intent and its purpose. Yes. Which is in this case to kill. Yes. Is it not? I mean, it, it for whatever reason, it, it's it's the and that goes back to I like that. And I, I think it goes back to that idea that. Wendy and Danny have encroached too much into into the premises, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And you need to take care of it. And not only that, but Danny's trying to bring someone else in too. And they they allude to the fact that that and Grady alludes to the fact that that Holleran's on his way. Yes. Your son, are you aware that your son's bringing outsiders in? Yeah. It's uh, it's also I, I actually love the scene. That's a great analysis of it. I think that's a, a real fair approach to that scene. And I love the physicality showing the the transition mm-hmm. uh, of power. I think that's good. I also think that um, I just love the performances in this scene. I love Grady in in, in his performance. Oh, I love so this good. actor. He's so good. Uh, I love the lines of dialogue when and how he talks. You know, right? Um, I had to. You know, he's talking about how he had to take care of his family. Right. And, you know, are you ready to remedy remedy it like I did? And just the way they talk about it, it's so it's it's creepy because it seems so formal 
in such like a formal way to to discuss killing people. And the way he says, maybe maybe they need a good talking to, maybe more. Yeah. And it's just it's so it's so creepy. Yeah. And especially delivered in a British accent. By the way, for a hotel in Colorado, there's sure a lot of British people walking around. Yeah, there was. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it must be a destination. It must be. Yeah. I guess. I mean, people must move from London to Denver. Exactly. Um, or the mere fact that it was filmed in England. Or parts of it. Yeah, were, you know. I think that probably explains <laughs> a little bit better. <laughs> and Kubrick lived in England. That was his place. So, uh, but this scene's great. I like that idea of the transition of power between Jack and the hotel. Um, and then uh, it kind of gets into, and, I, and I'm going to jump over a few scenes here so we can kind of push it along just a little bit. But ultimately, uh, uh, Halloran finds his way to the hotel after, and he really goes, the, like we talked about, he goes a real a lot of length to, to, to find his way to help yeah. Danny. But he does, and he gets there. And, you know, it's this, he gets to the hotel, and it's this great buildup. This is where the music's used really effectively. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's Halloran walking through the hotel. And I'm jumping through a few scenes here. And just for time's sake, so we're not. But if sure. I, if if there's a scene you want to talk about before we jump to this one, just stop me, and we can go back to it. But um, basically, there's and there's been an altercation with Wendy and Jack, and it, it's this great altercation, by the way, with the baseball bat. Yeah, yeah. And Wendy ends up knocking him out. Although her swing needs some help. Yeah, it does. Well, and this is part of the point where I'm like, Shelley Duvall maybe wasn't the best for this because even later when she's got the knife it's just so frail and her arms are flopping around and it's just cartoony there's not a lot of athleticism to yeah definitely but one thing i will say is when when jack's locked in the in the it's not the refrigerator so 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 wendy knocks him out with the bat and drags him to this canned goods storage right to me this is the this is the first part where i'm starting to realize the hotel this is not all in jack's head because the hotel lets Jack out of the food storage. Right. And this is the first, that's the first part where I'm like, okay, maybe there's more going on here. And it, and it, and it's also a good, cause we were just talking about the scene with Grady and mm-hmm. introducing to Grady. Then the scene with the baseball bat, which is great. We won't get into the depth of it just because we want to move it along a little. Sure. But ultimately she takes him to the canned storage room. He's in there locked and we hear Grady again. From the outside. Yeah. So you're basically saying, okay, this is more than, this, th- there's something deeper going on here. Well, when, when we never see Grady, like it never cuts to him on the outside, we just hear his voice. Yeah. You're still thinking maybe it's all in Jack's head, but it's when he lets him out. Because how else would he could he possibly get out of there? I mean, this is a, a an apparition, a ghost that can yeah. can tangibly touch things. Yeah. Yeah. No. The hotel's got its. Or work. the hotel's hinges just work that way because exactly. it's haunted. Exactly. Right. So, uh, but um, he 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 lets Jack out of the canned storage room, and then they go, and this is where we run into uh, uh, the scene we I was just talking about before, with a little bit later with Holleran, and he's walking through trying to find Danny and 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 Wendy, and I love the anticipation build of this scene, and. It's him walking through these long shots and he's kind of, hello, hello. Yep. And it's really long. Like it takes for a while to, for anything to build up. We do cut to a shot of Jack at the stairs who now has an ax. Right. But he's, he hears hollering and hollering, of course, can't see him. 
And then it cuts back to Holleran just kind of parading through the hallways trying to look for everybody. Well, and I, this is another divergent from the book that I think is fantastic. In the book, it's a croquet mallet that Jack's carrying around. Mm. Having it be an axe is so much more terrifying. I mean, the croquet mallet is scary enough, but an axe, are you kidding me? I disagree. I just don't see the croquet mallet being scary at all. Well, when it's a deranged, abusive father hunting... I get that, it, but... It's scary, but an axe is infinitely more terrifying. We've just upped the ante quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. It's, this is serious shit now. And also, Halloran, when he's walking through that music, this is when it does... I mean, you were alluding to the fact that maybe it, there's a lot of it going on yeah. throughout the film, but this really builds it... Absolutely. In a... I don't want to say the cliche way, but also in the cliche way, right. which is just building suspense, using the music and elongating the scene right. until it's revealed and Jack pops out. And it's quick. It's super quick. And, he, and this is where the movie gets really scary. Up to this point, I, it's, I don't, it's been creepy at points, but it's been long and not. I, I haven't been scared one little bit, but this is where it's like, oh, shit. You it's, haven't been is, scared, but you've been intellectually challenged. Very true. Very true. Okay. But he jumps out in this quick shot. He basically pulls a leather face in a sense of like it's quick. It's quick. And it's the cutting's fast. Yep. And that the that axe going into the stomach, I felt that. Totally. That was shot really well. It really was. And then cutting felt, to Danny's face where he is just he knows exactly what just happened. Yep. It's so effective. Such great editing right there. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And then so now that's our that's our really that's our first kill. Yeah. That's <laughs> the first, first, first death. That's our first kill. Halloran's dead. Now I guess in the book he doesn't die, or he does. I can't remember. I, I was reading I, somewhere, and I could be wrong, and, and I, I think he lives. But I, I could think be wrong. I think that might be right. If I remember right, he might be in Doctor Sleep in the book. I can't, I, I can't remember right. It's been so long since I've read that. And now we go to this last twenty minutes or so where it's a chase scene. Yes, through and through. Very intense too. And it's a great chase. It absolutely is. In contrast, and I, we, and I know you love the Texas Chainsaw. And mm -hmm. when we did the podcast, I like. It's a great movie. It's a great movie, but that chase scene's long. It's very. It's too long for sure. Whereas here, how they play the chase scene for me works out pretty well, and yep. ends up happening that he starts going after Wendy and Danny. Danny and Wendy separate to try to. She tries to to what's the word. Uh, divert Jack. Yeah. And so Danny and Wendy separate so that Jack follows her, but then he ends up still following Danny and he's, yep. they're searching through this. And that's the beauty of the hotel. Cause it's so big and expansive. Like there's so many hiding places for a right. kid. And so just the search is like, this could go on for a while. Right. For sure. For sure. He, uh, ends up following Danny. They, they, you know, uh, gets to, and we should probably talk about how they separate. We should probably talk about that scene. I don't want to jump in. I was, I was trying to speed ahead, but the bathroom scene. Uh, the, the epic, iconic this is where This scene. is where they separate, or right. this is where she sends Danny out the window. Right. Any, 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 kind, of, any kind of thoughts around that before we proceed? No, to it, and I know, okay, I'm, this is where I'm going to get a lot of hate, man. I, I know it's a very iconic line. It's a very iconic scene, but I don't, I don't love the here's Johnny line. I don't love it. I, I know it was ad-libbed, but to me, it's just not, it doesn't fit the mood. It's like, oh, man, I was into it, and it just took me right out of it. Yeah, and like you mentioned, it wasn't written in the script. Right. And I had read somewhere in the editing where 
Kubrick almost didn't use it. Really? Uh, and it was, like you mentioned, improvised by Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I'm kind of, new. it sounds, I'm kind of neutral on that line. Uh-huh. Because everything building up to that is terrifying. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I can see where you're talking about, where it do, it pulls you out. Mm-hmm. But the build up to that, where he's just taking an axe to the door. Oh, so I mean, I, you just put yourself in that position. It's terrifying. It's horrific. And when he breaks through and delivers, even the front cover of the DVD is the yep. "Here's Johnny." Yep. Um, this is where the the craziness of Nicholson it just excels. Oh, he's so perfect for this role. So. And, and and a quick side note, they did Kubrick is known to be a a perfectionist in the sense that he was methodical about how scenes were to be organized and mm-hmm. played out. And apparently they did like a hundred takes of this scene. Yeah, I heard they went through sixty doors. Sixty doors, hundred plus takes, and it took something like by the time and going back to it, it was like nine days to get to get it to get it done so no not this one i'm sorry not nine days it was uh, 60 doors 100 takes to get it done um because and also the door they built nicholson the first door he took down yeah way too easily yeah they, yeah. they said he took down too easily and you were probably reading as well and i guess he was like a volunteer fire marshal so he had a good He's knowledge a of like how badass. to use an axe yeah, exactly and so he took it down and they built it light and they were like oh shit we got to do this in another <laughs> take right. so the next doors they built a little more sturdy. So as an actor, how do you do take 100? Like, how do you, I don't even know how to do take 10 or take five. How do you, how, I don't know how you can possibly keep that energy and keep, I just don't get, especially a, a role phys- like a this. physical scene. And, and, and you see in, in kind of the, the behind the scenes stuff where Jack Nicholson's jumping around and he's amping himself up. I don't know how you can keep that up for 100 takes. And he also... And I'll get to that, but like when he's amping himself up to, to prep for the uh-huh. scene and he's grabbing the axe and you see one of the crew members. Yeah, yeah he almost gets, he <laughs> almost gets taken yeah, out. Yeah. You're like, oh, better watch yeah, out there, buddy. Exactly. Um, 100 takes is a lot. It's an extraordinary amount. Kubrick's known for this. For sure. Uh, lots and lots of takes. As an actor, um, I'm not one, but I could, I could see where this would be just overwhelming. And just brutal. I, I can't. And, and a lot of these long, er, uh, multiple, multiple, multiple takes were with Danny, too, in this movie. And he's a kid, and I don't know how you can possibly keep going with a child for that long. Well, that goes into some of the stuff, we'll, which the, the production dates and how long it took to actually shoot the film. Okay. Um, because with the kid, you only have, you have stipulations and rules mm-hmm. based around how long they can actually be on set. Um, and the film took a long time to actually much longer than they originally had planned for. Sure. They tried to keep it, and you may know this too, but they tried to keep it as minimal beyond the, uh, the, the, the scheduled days as possible mm-hmm. because Nicholson's overtime pay would have been oh, I can't even imagine. Beyond, yeah. beyond there. But, but this scene's great. Uh, Duvall's performance in the scene, you were saying a little bit over the top. Uh, yeah, I, I like... I like her performance in the bathroom. Well, I wouldn't say I like it, but it's it's more believable to me. It's more when she's running around the hotel like a like a lunatic, wait, flailing her arms around, and the knife is as big as her arm. 
And it's just, it, it's a lot of it's just like, it's so cartoony that so, I just can't get into it. Yeah. And, and I can see that. And I know we've jumped past some scenes. So for those listening, I apologize. We're just trying to not make this a complete three hour podcast yeah, yeah. for you. So there's a lot of scenes, a few, a couple scenes, I should say, that we haven't touched on. Of course, Danny's red rum scene, right? There's some things in there we have not touched on. But Danny is, he sees the premonition and he knows that, that dad's on the way to kill. Yeah. Then we get to the, the bathroom scene, like we just talked about. Danny goes out the window. Wendy and Danny are separated. And like you mentioned, Jack's chasing him, but Wendy's are running around the, the, the hotel like a mad woman herself, flailing and, yep. and doing all these kind of things. Danny's made his way out to the hedge, mage, hedge maze in the absolute brutal of winter. And um, Jack has found his way out, and he's been injured. Yep. Had, he's been injured, and so he's limping. And uh, they get out to the, you know, he finds, they get out to the hedge maids, and this is a, an interesting scene. Now, while they're in the, the maze, it's also cutting to Wendy in the hotel. And as she's running around, she sees Hollerin dead on the floor. Mm -hmm. She also now starts to shine. And this is no, this is the because uh, she's the the hotel is showing her things. Yes, this is the part where I'm like, okay, it's not for sure not in Jack's head. Maybe he snuck out of the the food storage somehow, but for sure when she starts seeing the stuff, it's not in Jack's head. This is the hotel revealing itself to her. And there's a theory out there that I'll throw by you because okay, why all of a sudden does Wendy see? the things that she hadn't seen before. Uh, and that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, she sees the cobwebs. She sees the skeletons. She sees the party, the dude with his head split, saying what a great party, and the guy in the bear suit. I don't understand what that's about. So she's seeing all this crazy shit, and I don't know why. I don't know why, other than I think that the hotel is just about done with them. I think this was a theory I read online, so we won't dive too deep. Okay. But at this moment, the, like you mentioned, the hotel is starting to reveal itself and she's seeing all these things. But those things are they resemble elements in a subtextual way about her past. Oh, interesting. Interesting. This is a theory I read online. It's not mine. I'm okay. not claiming it. OK. And it has to do with her own skeletons in her closet. Sure. That she deals with. Um, and it has to do with. Um, particularly, and this is probably where it stretches a little, uh, being abused as a child. Okay. And uh, sexually abused. Sure. Because of the stuff she's seeing, it kind of, I mean, there's a there's a bear giving a blowjob. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? Sure. And bears, teddy bears usually indicate like oh, good point. some kind of childish, like, kids like teddy bears right that's a really good point anyway this was a theory i read and i was like that's pretty interesting i don't know that i agree with it entirely but i do enjoy kind of going into that layer for sure and and so the hotel reveals itself based on her own demons and skeletons that she holds on to from her own past well and it might explain why she's with jack too because cycles tend to repeat themselves like Absolutely. this and abuse victims as children often choose partners who are abusive yep and, you know, it feels kind of like home. And that's a really messed up thing to say, but it just 
it reminds her of that childhood and that could explain why she's with him yep no that's a great that's a i like that theory actually yeah i think the theory is interesting and i read it and i thought it was a nice one to, to talk and about finally an explanation for the teddy bear guy finally an explanation for <laughs> i've the teddy always bear. my whole life ever since i saw this i've been wondering about that so well that's one to go off of right but yeah nonetheless um we cut back to Wendy. She's I, I call it like her being involved in The Shining in the sense that she's seeing these things and, and the hotel is shining itself to her through her past. Potentially, Interesting. Potentially. Um, Danny's outside. He's in the in the maze. And Danny becomes a little bit of a, a, a sleuth here, like a detective in the sense that like he's thinking about things. He's like, OK, how do I get rid of dad? Dude, he's a smart fucker. That kid is smart, smart man. I don't know that if I was like his age, I would have been. I wouldn't think I would have backtraced my no. footprints in the snow. Not at all. So Danny, smart. Danny, now can Danny have the shining gift and know whether he's really going to die or not? I don't know. It's a good question. Saying, like maybe he question. could just have a premonition and go, "I'll be good," and just hang out. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to be just fine. I'll just hang out in the hedge here. <laughs> Something you know, but but he backtracks his steps in the snow, and and then finds a way out. Yep. And here's where I go back to my theory. Because Jack gets left in the hedge. Yep. And freezes to death, but Danny makes his way out of the hedge, comes out the other side, right, and meets up with Mom, and everything has now quote-unquote, is reestablished to a normal world. Yes. And Jack is left in this intermediary state. Because what I was saying before is, and this is a stretch, this is my own hypothesis. Okay. But it's the the hedge is the gateway into the world. Yeah. Because they go in, and then after that, Jack really starts to turn. Danny goes back into the hedge. Jack follows him in. Danny finds a way out of the hedge. Interesting. Things yep. turn back to normal. Makes sense. But Jack's caught in the intermediary. He's caught in the, the cycle or the world between both. Do you know what I yep. mean? Yeah. So that's my thesis on it uh, from that perspective. And uh, an interesting one about the last chase scene here, uh, which, which is, uh, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Jack's chasing Danny before this, before he gets out. And... Um, chasing him with the axe. He's limping along, dragging it. Uh, there's a little bit of a thesis out there that uh, this is a, a kind of pulled from a, a form of Greek mythology, which is a story about uh, Theseus and the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Uh, this is one that's floating out there. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of cool. And the, the, the Greek myth between Theseus and the Minotaur is that Theseus defeats the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. And if you watch Jack's physicality in his performance, while he's dragging himself, it's very bullish. Yeah, he, his head's down. He's charging with his head. Yeah. Yeah. Breathing sure. and I doing all it. It's just kind of a cool play on, like, if you were a filmmaker, how you might be able to take a story from Greek mythology and incorporate that into how you might play out a scene yeah, in, I like on, that. in movies. So it's kind of a cool uh, analogy. What? Okay. So we kind of sped through that last part. But we got through it. Uh, they end up getting through it on the other end. They come out on the other side of the world, and Jack's left behind. And Wendy and Danny are now free from that 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 evil. Yep. And then the last shot. 
we get to this really slow push in of the different pictures on the wall. And as it gets closer and closer, it's revealed in one of those that it's either Jack or someone that eerily resembles Jack. <laughs> looks exactly like him. Yeah. yeah. Not even resembles. Yeah. His identical twin. And and it pushes in and then a couple dissolve cuts getting closer, revealing who it is. And we're like, hey, that's Jack. Mm-hmm. And then a pan down to the Overlook Hotel, July 4th, to, uh, 1921. And this is where I get a little confused because there are allusions to throughout the movie that th- they could be stuck in that hotel forever. Mm-hmm. You know, Grady's there. He, he died in that hotel. The girls tell Danny, you know, we can play forever and ever and ever. Jack also says, I wish we could stay here forever. Um, I don't understand how all of a sudden that translates to him being there always. So that's the that's the one thing I don't understand. Like if they die in the hotel, it's my sense that they're they're gonna be stuck there for for eternity. But does that I guess that means retroactively they were there too. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh hypotheses out there. Um one interesting line from Kubrick himself is when questioned about that shot. Uh-huh. He said, this is, uh, they said, what's the deal with the last shot? And he essentially says, Kubrick says of the final shot, that is a reincarnation of Jack. I guess that makes sense because he did say he felt like he'd been there before. Uh, He says that, remember, he was talking about how he he knew it was around every corner. So not, not that I, do you or can you in the concept of religion or those that believe in reincarnation do you reincarnate as yourself (laughs) right right exactly well and i mean that's that's interesting and i i i mean it's kubrick and it's his movie so obviously he he would know best but i to me it's just a little bit of a stretch like he kind of he kind of built this world where i can believe there's ghosts and i can believe that they're doing all this kind of stuff but now all of a sudden they're throwing another element in the last shot that i just i'm not i'm not following it all the way Seems a little, just a little, like two steps too far out of the world. Yeah. So it's an interesting one to think about, you know. Um, my, I think that I can see what he's saying there with the reincarnation, but I also believe that I would, like I mentioned, I would just potentially question if you reincarnate as yourself or someone that looks eerily just like you. Yeah, exactly like you. Um. Well, good. A couple things here. I want you to now. We watched Room Two Three Seven, and and like we talked about before, uh, and then we'll get your final thoughts on the film itself as an overview. But a couple, um, a couple of the myths because they're always they're always fun to talk about, uh-huh. you know. And Room Two Three Seven goes into them. I know you didn't love that movie, the documentary. That, yeah. Uh, let me go through some of these. Um, you know, let me go through some of these theories, okay. you know, kind of conspiracy theories in a sure, sense, sure. and see about The Shining and see. I won't go into depth, but just whether they're, if you would debunk them or validate them. Okay. Right? Okay. And some of them come from Room 237. It's about the Apollo 11 moon landing. No. I, I, and this is what this is like my biggest problem with, with this documentary is they actually present some interesting ideas in there that I'd like to maybe hear some more about, but then they also throw it in with this batshit crazy stuff. Yeah. 
that it's just like, no, no, that's stupid. Yeah, absolutely. That one is no. But, 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 but Alan, the, the, the moon is 237,000 miles away from the earth. Is it though? I saw that in that. Is it really? I didn't, I I should have fact checked this. It is actually. Oh, it is. Okay. But that's not enough validation for me. Right. I, I debunk. Well, and the the whole thing with the key where it's the, the, on the key, it says room number 237 and the only capital letters are R-O-O-M and N. It's like, are you, what? No. Because those letters can only spell room or moon. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? No, I, I, de- I debunk this one and, with you. And, and then the other, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you go on. But the other thing that drives me crazy with these conspiracy people is it's always like, look how important I am. He's like, I'm going to be audited and I've had people follow me around and the government's really after me because I, I nailed it. And I've had people tell me, you really nailed this. It's like, because I critically broke down Stanley Kubrick's it, film. Exactly. It's yeah. like, come on. You're just, you're doing this to make yourself more important. There's a self importance to it for exactly. sure. I debunk that one. Yeah, me too. The film is definitely not about the Apollo 11 moon landing. No, no. It's about the treatment of Native Americans. See, this one held a little bit more water. I'm, uh, I kind of agree with you. I don't know if I'd go all the way, but this one kind of made more sense. And this is one I'd like to hear more about, actually. This one has, it resonates a little more. I don't know that it, like you mentioned, it fully would, you know, translate over or transcend right. what they're talking about. But there's some hints there, and it's kind of well, an interesting Even thing. when Jack's throwing the ball against the, uh, the wall, it sounds a little bit like an Indian drum. True, and so I, I even like I hints at it. I I find, kind of found myself. Um, oh, it's all good. Get, sorry about oh, wait, that. I got. Oh yeah, these will come in handy. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Sweet. Oh, it's all good. But I even found myself at times because I've seen this the room two, three, seven before, yeah. like watching it with that eye, like, Oh, maybe I can pick up on some clues here. Yeah. I found myself falling into that trap a little bit. It's about the Holocaust. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe. I, I mean, the whole premise in the movie about the German typewriter and all that stuff is, it seems a bit far fetched. It's also kind of dependent upon whether you believe in the significance of numbers. Definitely. Because sure. the number 42 reappears in the film. Mm-hmm. Right, which is like at least when, not not when it started, but when America dove into the war right. and tried to defend against what was happening in Germany and other things. Um, they're watching a film from ni- called you know nineteen you know so like that one maybe that one may, the more I think about it maybe uh, the only thing I can say to that is that and also like if you do two times three times seven it equals four right two. right like there's because he did change the room number from the book the book it was two seventeen right so. So maybe there's something there. Um, you know, Kubrick was born in New York, in the Bronx. Um, he's Jewish, non-practicing, but mm-hmm. Kubrick is a, he's a Jew. Um, and he did write a Holocaust film um, centered on the Aryan papers. And they never got made. So he and he spent a lot of time on it. Kubrick spends years and years preparing oh, and doing pre-production. Sure. So it could, I think, I don't know that it's about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. But I think because he did so much preparation for this other film, I think just as a filmmaker, I think some of that bleeds over. For sure. For sure. Um, Let's go. Here's one that I found interesting. 
It's actually supposed to be viewed backward and forward. No, I, I, this is so stupid. It's, it's like, have you ever heard of the synchronization of Pink Floyd, The Wall, and The yes. Wizard of Oz? Yes. Okay. Oh, not The Wizard of Oz. No, tell me about this quickly. Yes. So it, it's, it's a, and it's a cool thing. I've actually done it. Like you, you synchronize uh, The Wizard of Oz and you turn down the sound and you play Pink Floyd, The Wall. Mm. No, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, excuse me. And so they call it Dark Side of the Rainbow. It's a cool thing. Like it, it's a cool thing and some cool visuals pop up and some of the things they're talking about in the music or, you know, they're singing about it actually happening on screen. But it's a total coincidence, and it's just a cool thing. And I think you could sync up a lot of different things, and you'd see a lot of cool shit. That's that's what this is. That I mean, you play them backwards and forwards, and you superimpose one on the other, right? And I guess you turn down the opacity of one of them, of either the forward cut or the backward cut. And so you're seeing some cool stuff line up, and I think it's I think it's really cool. But I don't think it was designed. Do you know how hard it would be to do that? Look if. If anyone's going to do it, it's Kubrick. It, I, that's true. That's true. But that's good. I agree with you. Like, it's actually a cool one to me because for me, there's, if and watching the film, there's so much yeah. visual symmetry all the way through the movie. For sure. Does that make So it's like if something transpired this way, you could play it back this way because they match. They're just symmetrically uh, right. adjoined. Right. Right. So there's something about it. I don't think it was built that way, like you mentioned. For sure. But, you know, I don't think it, there's any kind of Kubrick code. Right. Yeah. You exactly. know I what mean, I mean? If, but you're, if you're a weed smoker, I'm sure it'd be fun to just that's what I was gonna toke say. up I a think little bit and do it. Similar to the one that you were sharing, I think mostly it's like if you watch it while you're stoned. Yeah, exactly. They mention in here, too, that uh, but red rum spelled backwards is... Murder. Yeah, but that's Stephen King. Like a lot of things in the in the in this documentary that they're saying, like Kubrick was trying to say this. It's like no, that was taken. It was in the book. That was in the book. Here's a an interesting one. It's about hell, and Jack Torrance is the devil. I like that one. I'd have to kind of rewatch it with that in mind. But Here, I like here's that. a quick one, a run through on it. The Over the Hotel is hell. And a manifestation of Jack's deepest fears, but theorists are split on whether Jack merely made a pact with the devil in order to get a drink, like we were talking about, or if he, if, if the demented writer is actually the devil himself. Evidence for the latter? The old black and white photo of Jack from the end of the film, where he is seemingly trapped in 1921, shows him in the exact same pose as the devil tarot card. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I don't know. That's a probably a little far stretch for me. I like I like the but idea of him, of him selling his soul, though. I like that. Well, we were alluding to that. Yeah. And I liked that as well. Okay, here's one. And this goes to some of what we were talking about. It's all a dream or a nightmare. Right. Uh, I like that one, except it's so cliche. I'm not, I'm not, I, I think Kubrick's smarter than that. A hotel layout that makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> ghosts that pop up where they shouldn't supernatural abilities elevators of blood uh so all these things leading up to this idea that it's all really just part of a large dream sequence could be don't like that one could be. i mean maybe when danny when danny w went uh when he was knocked out or whatever and the doctor came in maybe it just became a long dream of his while he's knocked out i don't like it i don't like it either but i like where you're going i like it <laughs> 
here's here's a couple more and then it's about (laughs) it's about cia mind control of course i i there has to be this you know because it's kubrick and there's all these conspiracy theories surrounding him of course it's got to be that the cia mind control so the cia ran a classified controversial behavioral program uh, in the early 1950s mm-hmm. to the 70s, which subjected its human test subjects to a number of illegal techniques, LSD, sensory deprivation, without their consent in order to ascertain the best methods of interrogation and mind control. Some fans claim Jack Torrance is one such human test subject for this program with the Overlook Hotel representing the CIA slowly but surely eating away at his mind. Sure. I mean, I can understand how conspiracy theory people would, would get that out of this. Interesting. But I don't man. think it was made with that intention. No. It's about the Illuminati. Oh, God, of course. It's there's just like a couple cliches we could throw <laughs> I know, in. I know. Any Kubrick film, you could probably go, it's about the Illuminati. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know? God knows what they're saying about Eyes Wide Shut. Even in the article <laughs> that's here, they're basically saying it wouldn't be a proper conspiracy theory list if we didn't it, have this on so there. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. The last one, and then we'll move on to the last bit here. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this. This is by on IFC, by the way. Oh, is it? This is not like IFC is a legitimate yeah. you know, distributor platform for movies, et cetera. It's not like BuzzFeed. No. Top 10 conspiracy theories surrounding The Shining. It, is, it inspired Frozen. What? Hear me out. Hear me out. Okay. Okay. The latest and possible craziest theory claims that Disney's endlessly popular animated film Frozen is actually the movie, the same movie as The Shining. Okay. Okay. They hypothesize that Ice Queen Elsa and Jack are a danger to family members whose volatility increases after a long isolation inside a giant, ornate, high-ceilinged building in a cold, desolate landscape. Okay, there's, def- there's definitely some parallels. They go on to compare screenshots from both the films. In fact, look visually similar, including the ending shots of both the characters frozen in the wilderness. It's actually a really fun theory, but since Kubrick is no longer around to explain it, we won't go deeper. But that one's a far stretch, but it's funny. Right, right, I like that. And they actually... We're right about the character. Oh, totally. El- Elsa totally. and Jack do share common threads. For sure. For sure. So interesting. Some some ones in there. there. So Alan, tell me. So those are some fun, some fun things. Um, things you liked about the movie, things that, that didn't kind of as a wrap up and also where you might place this on a rating scale one to ten. So th- this is a. This is a great movie, and I'm trying to separate myself from my bias from reading the book first as much as possible. It's a great movie. It's as far as horror movies go, it's it's almost too good to be a horror movie, if that makes sense. And I'm not. It's too important as well. And I'm not saying horror movies. I'm a huge horror fanatic. I'm not saying horror movies can't be important, but there's there's so much going on in this in this film that it's it's hard to classify it as just a horror film. Because that kind of has a connotation that it's just kind of schlocky or or it's got a B-movie quality to it. And this is definitely more important than that. Um, I don't think it's very scary. I, it's not until the end that I was really scary. I think it drags a, a lot. But this is definitely, I mean, it's 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 an adaptation of Stephen King. And those, if you've ever read any of his books, they man, they drag and drag and They're drag. They're long. They're very long. 
needlessly long. And I so, did start reading it. Oh God, that's that's a. And then I got to page one hundred and flip and went to the end, and it was like nine hundred and eighty-five pages. I don't know what. The, and I was like, I can't read the rest. It's ridiculous, especially because the beginning starts so slow. Yeah, exactly. And the stand is even worse. The stand, I mean, is it's considered his greatest novel, but it's it's over a thousand pages, I think. It's it's ridiculous. It's a marathon, man. Yeah, I, I it's I've that one I've never read because it's just too long. But um, so you know, as a movie, I really enjoyed it. As a horror movie, uh, if I was to if I was to rate it solely as a horror movie, I probably wouldn't rate it that high. But as a film itself, it's it's great. It's great, and I would I would definitely put it again. I'm a hard grader. I'd put it at a seven to seven and a half. Okay. Now you're speaking on the lines of being a horror a horror movie. Entertainment Weekly has it as the ninth best horror movie of all time. Interesting. Don't don't know what you know. Take it or leave it, right? Yeah. Um, a couple pieces of trivia that are fun. Uh, so many changes to the script during the shoot that Jack Nicholson claimed he stopped reading it. <laughs> He'd only wait for the new p- pages to be given to him each day. Nice. So it goes back to Kubrick's obsessive compulsiveness of like i've got to have everything quote unquote perfect yep shelly duvall suffered from a nervous exhaustion throughout the film including physical illness and hair loss well he was brutal to her too that's the Kubrick was brutal yeah i I, i've seen a a behind the scenes documentary about it it's man he's rough that is the word um as you alluded to stephen king was disappointed in the film and while admitting that Stanley Kubrick's visuals were stunning, he said that that was the surface and not substance. He often described the film as a fancy car without an engine. And I kind of understand what he's saying there because there is no redemption in this one. And in the book, that's a big thing is Jack kind of makes a final sacrifice. Uh, he he kind of has to, I can't remember exactly what happens, but he holds the boiler down while Wendy and Danny get out and then it blows him up. And but he he so he sacrifices himself and there's none of that in 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 Kubrick's yeah yeah but unless you use my theory and then it's a happy ending yeah yeah because the happy ending is Jack stays in the intermittent world the yep. intermediary world and and Wendy and and uh, Danny they live free I mean Jack wanted to be there always so well now he's definitely sticking around <laughs> he definitely is you're reporting so. Despite his reported abuse of Shelley Duvall on set, Stanley Kubrick spoke very highly of her in, in her ability in interviews, and he found himself quite impressed by her, report, her performance in the finished film. So there is that reported abuse, and he, yeah. probably, he was a, a complete dick to her. Yeah, totally. But uh, you know, going back quickly to her performance, we talked a little bit about Jack Nicholson. I, I really was impressed as well. I, I liked it. And even those parts that feel a little bit over the top, mm-hmm. uh, I still fell into it. I was okay with it. And I thought she did a real great job kind of conveying a, a vulnerability to being a mother who's trying to save her child. Well, and I we've, we've kind of mentioned this, but I want to just be clear. Jack Nicholson is fantastic. I mean, he, I, 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 it's one of the best performances I've ever seen in a movie. He's... Like we talked about, he's the Mount Rush. He's on the Mount Rush for me. And this is one of those films that put him there. Absolutely. The shot of the tennis ball rolling, which we didn't talk about, but there's a shot of Danny playing with his trucks and his toys, and there's a shot of a tennis ball rolling into his purview, mm-hmm. his, 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 right in front of him. The shot of that ball rolling into Danny's toys 
took only 50 takes to oh get right. God. So some restraint there. <laughs> as, as opposed to the 100 on the door. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of other trivia here, a lot of, a lot of things and a lot of lore surrounding this film. Um, you gave your rating on it. You're at a seven to seven and a half. Quickly, do you have a final thesis about what it's even about? Um, no, not really. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what is it about? Uh, to me, it's, I think it's more about kind of overcoming and dealing with your demons, essentially. And, and not just, not necessarily the ugly parts of you, but the ugly parts of your past. And honestly, kind of sitting here talking to you and, and hearing that theory about the things that Wendy saw being part of her past, that kind of feeds into, into this. It solidifies this a little bit more for me is that you really, it's really about getting over or not getting over shit you've dealt with and shit that's dark inside of you. This is why I love the movie. This is exactly why, and I'll end this out here, why I love Kubrick. Because every time, and what, what epitomizes a real good movie for me and if we set genre categorization behind us, mm-hmm. what makes a great movie is, of course, wanting to see it multiple times, right? Which I can do with this movie. Oh, absolutely. And also on top of that is that everybody can walk away with some kind of personalized interpretation. That's fun. It's not what, and, and there's other movies that are fun too. If we go to Hobbs and Shaw tomorrow, right, we're going right. to have, I, I'm okay with it. It's going to be right, fun and crazy, right. but I'm not walking out going like, how do I personalize this film? We're not having a two and a half hour discussion on what it means. And that's not a knock. I like The Rock. Sure. I do. I like Hobbs and Shaw. Actually, it's a fun movie. But the epitome of like a great movie is the one that you subjectively can attach to and walk away with a viewpoint that's your own. Yes. And doesn't belong to anybody else. And so all these great theories we've read and ideas, and I love yours. I do. I like that a lot. But the beauty of The Shining for me is that I have, I actually don't think he's talking about one singular thing. Probably not. I think it's not just, I mean, I think it's covering a lot of things. He's talking about isolation. He's talking about the supernatural. He's talking about the past meeting the present. Right. Right. And confronting it, like you mentioned. He's talking about family relationships. He's even talking about writer's block. Yeah. Now, I, now, mind you, these are the, the Stephen King. I mean, this is an adaptation, right? Sure. He's talking about, you know, mental breakdown, cabin fever, uh, premonition, alternating worlds. Yeah. Like literally going from the real to the surreal. Yep. So for me, this movie is about all those things kind of wrapped into something that I can walk away from. And every time I watch it, I can discover potentially something new or I can build upon that, which I thought it might've been about before. Right. Right. And so this, it's funny because that's how the movie ends with no real, we'd, we'd say like real strong, conventional, resolute ending. Mm-hmm. We don't even see what happens to Danny and Wendy. I mean, I have my assumptions, but you're right. We don't see it. Right. And so for me, the cycle continues, whatever that might be, because 
every time I watch it, I'm, I'm going, oh, it's about isolation. Oh, it's about mental illness. Right. Oh, it's about supernatural. Oh, it's about, and then I'm going, oh, it's about past meeting present. Right. Every time I'm going, there's something new. And when I can keep going back to the well of a film and be engaged through it, and I get your point, which is like there's moments that are slow mm-hmm. and the pacing kind of drags. But I'm actually so engaged every time I watch this. Well, and it's interesting you say that because every every single person in room 237 in the documentary, they are certain that they know that. Like, every one of them is like, oh, I saw that, and I was like, I know exactly what this is about. And I told all my friends. And it, it's it. I think you're right. It, it's, it's that, I don't want to say open-ended, but it's that, it just feels like an important film. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels feels super important and that there's some serious deep meaning there and the fact that everyone looks at it and is just convinced that they know what it is i 100 percent agree and that's why i go back to not loving that documentary it was put together as a film as a doc like not necessarily the content but just kind of how they structured it Mm -hmm. as a as you know like it was well put together see and i'll disagree with you i hated it i thought it was well produced i I I look at it as a filmmaker i thought it was well produced but what i don't agree with is the content of what they're saying and like you mentioned the absolute certainty of what the film's about right so for me like i said i don't think it's one singular thing and you can pull from the well over and over and over and over again and it's that actually alludes to a little bit of what the context of the film is right because it's there's just like you can they're kind of going through this thing and they're discovering and finding things out. And then we, as the viewer are doing the same thing. And then I can go back and rewatch it and find something entirely new. So I like that. And I like the uncertainty and I like the idea of not entirely going, Hmm, this is exactly what it's about. Right. And all the theories are fun and they're fun to discuss, but I think Kubrick's leaving it ambiguous for a reason. For sure. And that's his intention. And I'll keep going back to the well to figure out and analyze new interpretations when I watch the movie the next time. It's what makes it fun. And that's what makes it so fun. So as a rating, when I'm looking at the movie, and there's so much, even at this long podcast, there's so much we didn't talk about. And that's the beauty of it. It goes back to what we were saying is like we keep going and going and going. Um, uh, Run through quickly. Um, where you see the Rotten Tomato score and also IMDb. So IMDb's got it ranked at, uh, or no, not IMDb, I'm sorry. Uh, let me pull this up. Uh, IMDb's got it ranked at uh, 8.4 out of 10. I thought it'd be higher than that. And then, let me just find it here. Sorry. Then I'll have to cut this part. The uh, Rotten Tomatoes didn't come up on IMDb this time. Because <laughs> I want to see what they said. You're fucking up your flow, man. What I the know. hell? I got to be cutting around <laughs> this. There we go. So IMDb has it at an 8.4. And Rotten Tomatoes is at 85% for the critics. 93% for the audience. Now, this is different than the previous horror films we've gone through yeah. the month because mostly the critics have been higher. Yeah. And in this case, the audience is higher and the critics are lower. Well, especially 
it being a Kubrick film, you would think the that the critics would be just drooling all over themselves to give it high scores. Yeah, that's that that would be the assumption. Right. See, this so, is what I would think more as far as the ratio from, uh, I guess ratio from uh, critics to audience. This I expected this more with the other horror films we've watched. I agree. Uh, particularly looking at it from that filmmaker's eye, like we talked about in previous podcasts, mm-hmm. which is like knowing what it takes to get shots and knowing yeah. the the approach to the technical approaches to actually get things to look good and right. et cetera. So the, the, but the, but you know, the, the critics came in a bit lower, not that it's a bad, still 85, uh, but the, the, the audience is at 93. So for me, kind of to round this out, uh, my consensus is that, be, you know, there's so many uncertainties like we alluded to. It's just beautiful. For me, it's beautifully made. Uh, there's a possibility. I liked what you were saying before about the overuse, maybe in certain areas of the music mm-hmm. or potentially depending too highly on the music. Um, performances are, I think they're really great. We talked about Nicholson. I think Duvall does a great job. I actually liked Danny Lloyd. Mm-hmm. I thought for a kid to be able to embody this, uh, well, a kid, but also a kid who has mental abilities and also make it just kind of eerily believable and kind of feel bad for the kid in a way. Right. I thought he did great. And so really loved the performances. Of course, the the beauty of the, the cinematography I think it's a Kubrick film, so you're not really going to look at it probably negatively, really, in terms of how it's the composition of the shots and the the mizzen scene, Um, the shot selections, the way that it's angled, the blocking, everything's just really well put together. But there is a but to this. It's not, if you're looking at the portfolio of Kubrick films, it's not even in my top three. Oh, really? Huh. But, and we can get into that later. I will say, I mentioned The Clockwork Orange. Yeah. As, as being up there. Um, I, for me personally, really, really, really love Dr. Strangelove. I just think it's fun. And it just is. so well done. But for The Shining, I'm going to come in, and I'm probably kind of coinciding a little bit here with IMDb. They're at an 8.4, and I'm going to give it an 8 flat. Okay. Uh, Whereas other Kubrick films, I'd probably go higher. I'm a higher grader, like we've talked about. Yep. But for me, that's a low Kubrick score. No, for sure. I'm actually really surprised to hear you say that. Yeah, I would. For other films, I'm going to go in higher. But for The Shining, I'm going to go in at an eight. And that's where I'll be on it. So this kind of wraps up our horror month. Went by too fast. Went by too fast. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm glad we decided to take that angle on it and really look at the horror films. Of course, makes sense. It's October. So this, and I think uh, our five selections over the month were really good yeah you know very different kind of diversity in them and so i would just to any listeners out there just go suggest to watch these movies that we're talking about Mm -hmm. and then listen to these podcasts and then make comments on hey you guys are full of shit yeah gabe i hate your theory the hedge maze i I, i've been podcasting a long time and those are kind of my favorite comments 
uh, you know, when they're kind of challenging you, not just being like just assholes, but yeah. when they're challenging you. And there's and a difference between a challenge and then just being a dick because yeah. you have nothing better to do. Exactly. And you have courage behind your keyboard. Exactly. Yeah. So it's been a fun month on Horror Month. Next time we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna be a mystery movie. So I'm not gonna allude to what it is because maybe I don't know. <laughs> I like that. Keep, keep guessing. I have a couple of things in mind, but because we're transitioning out of Horror Month, we're going to get back into a first-time film director Cool. in this case. In the coming weeks, though, we will have some some indie films, like films that most likely a lot of, uh, the majority of people haven't even seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get into those a little bit, too, because I think those are fun to dissect. So next time, pay attention. Next Tuesday, we'll have a podcast dropping. But it's a mystery box. Can't wait. I'm keeping you in suspense. I'm interested to know what it is. Perfect. (laughs) Well, you'll have to know. Yeah. So, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for kind of bearing with us on this two and a half hour plus podcast. I couldn't help it. I think we could have gone deeper, but we wanted to talk about The Shining. Go watch the film. Give us your thoughts on it. And uh, this is the Tame Aperture Podcast signing out. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.